So Shag and Rob are tied up to a giant penny. They're on either side. And the giant penny is going to be flipped by Two-Face. And either way, someone's going to die because either it's going to land on you and you'll be crushed or it'll land in your top up and the vibration will just break every bone in your body and you'll die. So you are a skilled marksman with a battering, but you only have one battering, so you can only choose to save one person. Which person will you save? Oh. <laughs> Gosh. This, um... <laughs> yep, this is how it is for everyone. Don't you worry. Well, I suppose the... The somewhat honorable thing to say would be that I would take myself out of the equation because I couldn't live without either of them. <laughs> okay. Um, I might save Shag because it's harder to replace him. Oh, okay. Uh, from a podcasting standpoint, I mean, the certainly the, the character, the personality that he brings to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I wouldn't mind replacing Rob in the film and water podcast department. <laughs> um, especially since he... He's already covered some of my favorite movies of all time without me as his guest. Oh, dear. So, um, wow. uh, but then again, I still need Rob to cover some future Secret Origins. This is almost an impossible question. I try to do that. I can't believe you said Shag, frankly. I mean, I knew you guys were had this sort of rivalry going on. He'll be pleased. It's not that I think the world would be a better place <laughs> <laughs> with him. Just that, for my purposes, what I need, he's harder to replace. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Lucy Lou, with my girl true. Cameron D and Destiny, Charlie's Angels, come on. Question, tell me what you think about me. I buy my own diamonds and I buy my own rings. Only ring your celly when I'm feeling lonely. When it's all over, please get up and leave. Question, tell me how you feel about this. Try to control me, boy, you get dismissed. Pay my own funnel and I pay my own bills. Always 50-50 in relationships. The shoes on my feet, I
Sawate. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 112 for January MMXVI. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by Secret Origins Podcast. Do you want to hear the origin of Superman or Batman? Of course not. You're listening to a geek culture podcast. You know the origins of Superman and Batman. You've always known them. Your unborn grandchildren know the origins of Superman and Batman. But what about Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, or the Phantom Stranger? What about Firestorm, Sandman, or the Golden Age Fury? Those are just a few of the stories covered in the Secret Origins podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comic published by DC in the 1980s. Each episode of the Secret Origins podcast features me, Ryan Daly, and an all-star collection of guest hosts revealing or revisiting the legends of the DC superheroes and villains. And if you're already sick of hearing my voice on this promo, the good news is at least 50% of the talking on the Secret Origins podcast is done by a terrific guest from the podcast and blogging community. So check out the Secret Origins podcast, available on iTunes and at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Backroll to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, hey, that's okay, because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are April's Backroll number 51 and Gotham Academy number 17, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll to Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. This is the first time for having this gentleman on my show, and I'm very happy he has a wonderful podcast, which is now changing. You'll have to tell us about that. Um, originally, it was Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast, but now it's going to be changing. So please welcome Ryan Daly to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Stella. I'm a longtime listener. Um, I, I kind of This felt like it was bound to happen. Absolutely. Between my Black Canary fandom and mm-hmm. your Barbara Gordon fandom, the two have some shared history in comics, that so I think, I think a, a frequent question that I would get is, so when are you going to team up with Stella to do something? So, and yeah, this are. is bound to happen. Yep. This is uh, sort of a weird – it's probably not the best team-up that we could have picked. I think there are probably future team-ups that will definitely be uh, better represented by us. But, you know, I saw Canary, Black Canary issue on the list, and I thought, man, I've got to ask Ryan Dealey to come on. So – here we are, our first team up, I'm sure, of several. I so wish you had picked any other issue. <laughs> I'm so sorry it was on my list. She appears, you know, we had to touch it at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's do it. Let's pull the band-aid off. Yeah, let's do it. I guess I'll start first with uh, your history with Barbara Gordon, since this is the, the Batgirl, you know, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Where did you first know or get to know her? Where did you first see her and start reading about her and things like that? I don't think I ever heard of her until you brought her up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, of course I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I knew of the character. It would have been from right around 1989, 90, when the first Batman film came out, directed by Tim Burton. 
around the same time just to capture the Batmania, mm-hmm. um, local station WGN uh, would always show two episodes of the old Batman 66 show. And eventually they just got to the Batgirl episodes, and that's what I remember. That was my first experience with her. Um, in reading the comics, because at the same time with that Batmania, I mean, I, I make the joke, but it's not really a joke. Every store in America, I think, had copies of Batman graphic novels and trade paperbacks. You couldn't go to like an auto mechanic and not find a copy of Batman Year One or a Death in the Family sitting on the shelf, just you know, waiting for people to read. So one of the first books or comics that I read was The Killing Joke, mm. um, which even at the time, I think I, I was too young and immature. I didn't I, – I guess I knew that that was okay. Joker was shooting Barbara Gordon, mm-hmm. who was Batgirl, but it didn't really register. I didn't, I didn't understand the consequences of that or what that meant. Like I was like, well, she's, she's Batgirl. She's not going to go away. Um, and then as I was getting into the character and, you know, just reading more Batman and Robin books throughout the 90s, um, sort of seeing her trajectory really only on the periphery because I wasn't reading Suicide Squad. So I didn't really see where she was going through that mm-hmm. book. But eventually, maybe one of the first times I saw her as Oracle was in this sh- uh, the issue of Showcase that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. This might have been my first experience with her as Oracle. Wow. Um, because even because this would have been taking place after Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End, right right after that, and I kind of stopped reading the Bat books once Bruce Wayne stopped being Batman, mm-hmm. um, just because it, it didn't really interest me when somebody else was running around the cape and cowl. Um, but I, I still, you know, just managed to pick up the books every once in a while. So since then, I, I grew to love who Barbara was as Oracle. Um, I, I was always a fan of Birds of Prey. I I really thought that. That allowed her to be a character that instead of just being a derivative female version of an iconic male hero, she really became something unique, something that in comics had never been explored before Mm -hmm. as this cyber hacker information broker to the superheroes. It was amazing. Uh, So I I really like that. At the same time, when, when they made the decision in 2011 that they were going to replace her and get her back in the Batgirl costume... I was okay with the decision to do that because I uh, like I like as I already said I didn't like when somebody else was Batman other than Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne. I prefer the characters in their most iconic versions. If I think of any Batgirl, sorry Stephanie Brown fans, I think <laughs> of Barbara. That's the only girl I want playing Batgirl. And the things that were unique about Oracle, the concept of this, you know, cyber genius with all access to the internet and everything, that was really special in 1996. It's not that special 20 years later because kids with cell phones can do a lot of the same things that she was doing. Mm-hmm. So I don't like the way the new 52 changed things. Uh, I thought they, they got greedy in trying to give her that part of her past too, but then say, no, she's Batgirl again. I think it would have been better if they had just always just had her as Batgirl. But uh, this, this could turn into me back, <laughs> a new 52 the, thing. the execution of the New 52. Oh, a lot of the ideas and the concepts behind the New mm-hmm. 52, I was, I was cheerleading from the sidelines when I first heard about it. 
the execution, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you're, I mean, the whole premise of the New 52 is honestly, if you are starting over in a sense, you know, really wanting to bring in new people, then I think you have to have characters that are the essence of their superhero identity. So, you know, if you're going with Superman, of course you're going to have Clark Kent. If you're having Batman, of course you're going to have Bruce Wayne. And I think the most well-known Batgirl was, in fact, Barbara Gordon. So I think they're going to, you know, start off there. And, you know, who knows if they're going to sort of transition and and evolve and go into other Batgirls, which I think is fine. But I think as a good starting point, it was, it was good to have Barbara Gordon. And I totally agree that the Oracle thing was sort of shoved in there. It wasn't really dealt with at all for a very long time. And then finally, uh, they just sort of got around to it. So it's been a yeah. It's they always have this tricky high wire act of because one of the things that has made DC Comics special was the concept of the legacy heroes mm-hmm. and the history of passing the mantle off from one to the other. And because of that history, because of the melodrama and the story that creates and the sense of conflict, that's really really interesting. And because of that, I would say. Most of the best Robin stories aren't about Dick Grayson as Robin. They're about Tim Drake. Mm-hmm. Most of the best Green Lantern stories aren't about Hal Jordan. They're about Kyle Rayner or Guy Gardner. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't help escape. My, when I think of these characters, I think of how they were in the Super Friends. If I can only have one Robin, I want it to be Dick Grayson, mm-hmm. even though I've read better Robin stories with Tim Drake. Right. If I can only think of... One bad girl, I want to be Barbara Gordon, even though Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown probably got better written material yeah. because of the time mm-hmm. period in which the characters were approached. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. well, I really can't believe that your first introduction was the killing joke. I mean, what a terrible <laughs> way to start. Did you have you gone back now since then and read it, reread it? I have, I, I reread it uh, not too long ago, and it's it's one of those it's one of those pieces of work that I will defend the story on its merits mm-hmm. that I think it is a a great story it is well written it is beautifully drawn and if it was just one story that they could have let exist on their own I wouldn't have had a problem with it the problem is when this story that is a game changing story for characters that maybe aren't meant to be changed this way when it becomes part of the continuity, part of the canon, all of the fallout that comes after it makes it a little bit more difficult. I, I feel the same way about Identity Crisis. I like that story mm-hmm. on its own, for the most part, but all of the problems that came with the way that changed the Justice League, the way that changed the characters. And sticking to the killing joke, yes, it's horrible that a beloved especially female character is brutalized by the Joker, not just shot and paralyzed, but stripped naked, posed for Polaroids, shown to her father. It is this ugly, disgusting, inhuman act. Mm -hmm. But the story isn't about Barbara. So yes, she is a victim, but it's uh, that is, that is meant to be an act that serves a greater story and how that affects Jim and how it affects Batman. Now, is that is that an excuse? No, not necessarily. They could have done that with other characters, and it's certainly in an industry and in a field where a lot of female characters don't have their own agency. They've always been sidekicks or love interests. It's It sucks that it has to happen to one of the few proactive, really iconic females. Mm-hmm. But, again, if, if it was just a one-shot that didn't mean anything... 
I'd be able to just digest it and say, yeah, okay, it sucked for that character, but had the roles been reversed, had they done the same thing to another character, I wouldn't have objected either. Um, it just it sucks that it, that it did become the canon, that that did become what, something that's because now it's something that lives with that character forever, that she's always going to have the stigma of this time that the Joker brutalized her. And every time the Joker comes up in competition, we have to look at Oracle and say, wait, how, does, how is Barbara? Is she, is she hyperventilating? Right. Is she, is she yeah. processing this right? It's sort of the same thing, going off on a weird tangent, in the Marvel Universe, in the Avengers, when Hank Pym backhanded his mm-hmm. wife, Janet. And it, it became the slap heard around the comic book world. Now, taken in context, I'm not excusing any, any sort of abuse in this case, but he, w- he was frustrated. He was just trying to push her out of the way. But it became this defining trait that Hank is a wife beater. But the problem is because Ant-Man or Giant-Man or Yellow Jacket, whatever his personality, because within the realm of comics he is intrinsically linked to Wasp, they could never get away from that story. It's bound to haunt them for the rest of their publication mm-hmm. lives. And she could never really leave him because how their origins are tied together, and that's, that's just the nature of comics. So he's the abuser and she's the enabler. And it really damaged those characters going forth um, for the sake of a really interesting, groundbreaking story that just happened to have these consequences that maybe weren't worth it. Do you see a lot of similarities between The Killing Joke and The Longbow Hunters? Uh, in terms of how The Longbow Hunters affected yes. Black Canary? With, within the limits of the stories themselves, yes. I think that you can draw clear parallels of how Dinah's victimization is similar to Barbara's. And how really all it was meant to do was propel the main character, the, the male character, forward in his, his story, his adventure. And there is certainly a sexual component to both crimes, whether or not they're described as rapes or not. I think that, that, that is a technical term. I think you can still categorize them both as sexual crimes uh, to some mm-hmm. extent. But in terms of the history or the legacy... No, because Black Canary was not defined by that one attack. Because, yeah, she lost her canary cry, she lost her ability for her sonic scream for a couple years, but that wasn't that big a deal. Um, She was still one of the best fighters. She still got interesting stories that came out of that. She was still able to wear the costume when she wanted to. It, It didn't have this prolonged, like as I said, game-changing effect mm-hmm. on the character's life. She also just wasn't as popular or wasn't as beloved as Batgirl. Yeah. So uh, I recently read that this summer, and uh, someone then recently asked me what I thought about sort of comparing the two circumstances and what which I thought was worse. And it was hard for me to answer that question because I, I thought they were both pretty horrifying and it was also just traumatic mm-hmm. for the men in their lives and how they were involved in trying to rescue them so i couldn't really i sort of stumbled around an answer but couldn't come up with a good one so yeah i have a i have a weird perspective in that i love the way mike grell wrote and mm-hmm. depicted green arrow mm-hmm. during his run and i hate the way he depicted black canary for most of okay. his run uh, and, and before we get into the actual books, because you are, so, you know, I would call you a Black Canary aficionado, um, which I hope people sort of take this episode and 
and see it as a, a way to go onto your show and listen to that. What has gotten you into really loving and following Black Canary's history? I sort of came about it backwards in that I wanted to start a fan blog before I knew who I wanted to do the fan blog devoted to. Um, it was just something where I was reading a bunch of fan blogs and I was listening to a bunch of fan podcasts. And I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. It, it combines you know, a lot of my own loves and this would be something to do. So I kind of thought, okay, well, it seemed like most of the ones I was reading or listening to or following were DC-centric. So I started looking at the DC characters and I was like, gosh, I, I like some of the old JSA characters, but I also really like that satellite era Justice League. I was like, well, there's one character who's kind of straddles both mm-hmm. of those worlds uh, and it was Black Canary and I looked around and I was like oh, okay there were a few Black Canary blogs but they weren't really active or they were the character with others and I was like gosh you know the, o- the only real exposure I've had with Black Canary was Birds of Prey is there anything else out there and I started doing some more exploration and reading some more of her backstory and, and I really really liked them and I was liking her Golden Age adventures and I was liking her old backup strips in Detective Comics or World's Finest um, and it was only after I started that I made the mistake of reading her self-titled books from the 90s that are <laughs> awful. Um, and, and thank you because hey, we're going to talk about one of them. <laughs> yeah. so, and then when I started podcasting, it was just a, a natural extension that it was something that I could do very quickly. I could do a podcast devoted to her. So my Black Canary podcast replaced the blog. Uh, and that was called Flowers and Fishnets, mm-hmm. a Canary podcast available on iTunes. And I use the past tense verbs because that show is officially canceled, <laughs> but will, will be replaced in the very near future. Uh, and I will plug That's that. That's great. Well, what if I don't get the time to do that? What if I just cut you off? Then my your <laughs> listeners are just going to be left hanging. Yeah. Or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. I recently got, you know, shout out to, to Chris Carnes, who does the Batman 66 uh, little showcase at the end of the episode. He, for Christmas, gave me the archives of Black Canary, the archive edition, and I've been reading mm-hmm. some of that. And they're they're pretty, you know, Johnny Thunder, um, which are, are pretty humorous yeah. <laughs> and just how he sort of gets strung along and he's just head over heels for her. Uh, so that's fun how she, it's strange how she's turned out. Well, she started off sort of as a villain-ass, kind of like a Robin Hood-esque character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she mm-hmm. was the fatale, um, and it just became, within a few short stories, they were like, you know what, we could use somebody like her, and Johnny Thunder has really worn out his welcome. Um, so she kind of replaced him, and she was one of the first, well, I, I wouldn't say one of the first women to have her own ongoing strip, because she started in like the late 40s, and uh, there had certainly been others before her. Um but it was fun. I mean, you can get the the show, um, the DC Archive edition of Black Canary. It's just one volume. Collects all of her old stories from Flash Comics. Uh, that's where she started as a backup. They're all very short. They're all very repetitive. They're very formulaic. Every episode, her boyfriend, who's a private investigator, stumbles upon some crime. She changes costume. She gets knocked unconscious every single story. Uh, and then wakes up tied to some death trap. And she escapes wow. and foils the crime. But, like, seriously... Like, you could not have a functioning brain with the amount of time she gets pistol-whipped or clubbed or poisoned or something. Okay. But they're still, like you said, they're still fun stories. Yeah, they're still fun stories. Um, yay, feminism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, as I was listening to your show, I, my goodness, her backstory uh, was more convoluted than I had originally thought. 
Um, and I know that Supergirl's backstory is also really weird with all, you know, the crises mm-hmm. and, and all of that stuff. Between the two of them, which one do you think has, like, the most confusing backstory? Oh. Uh. <laughs> if you could decide. See, the thing is, they they took proactive steps to make Black Canary's origin easy to digest mm-hmm. by simply splitting her into more than one character. So if you just accept that she's a legacy character, there was a Black Canary in the Golden Age, she had a daughter, and her daughter is the Black Canary in the current age. If you accept that, then it's fine. It's only when you dig deep and see how that came <laughs> about, the evolution of that process, yeah. that you get, okay, wait a minute, at first she was, for like two for like two or three years she was wait she was a clone of her mom or her her mom's memories were transplanted on her and she doesn't remember anything wait she's in love with her husband but that husband is actually her father <laughs> wait a minute so there's a whole lot of weirdness to be had but yeah. they at least they did enough to kind of to to change that supergirl's history Whew, that's tough that's another one where they've they made different supergirls that just that looked the same yeah. or acted the same, and it's uh, I don't know. That's a pick up. Okay, <laughs> flip a coin. I don't even follow <laughs> the Supergirl one. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think it's time that we dive right into one of your favorite issues. Sure. When are we going to start recording? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sadly, fa- uh, friends and, and listeners, Shag was supposed to join us. But given the fact that he's, you know, even though you decide to save him, given the fact that he's not really reliable, he's not here right now. So it's just going to be Ryan and I from here on in. So if you're expecting Shag Matthews to pop on, he's not there. So we're going to start off. We're just going to sort of touch upon, well, we as in Ryan, uh, the <laughs> poor guy. Uh, we're just going to touch upon Black Canary number 10. So what can you tell people about uh, the story? Because it's more than just 10. Well, first, this is all dedicated to the absent shag who you can never count on, completely unreliable Absolutely. and pity. <laughs> um, to, to get into this, to understand this issue, Black Canary issue 10, well, this is, it's weird because this is the second part of a three-part story that was coming just at the end of the series. Um, Black Canary's ongoing series, her, her first ongoing series, only lasted 12 issues. Uh, it was canceled after issue 12. And... Speaking as a guy who loves the character, these 12 issues are some of the worst comics I've ever read. <laughs> I can tell in from part, listening there, to your show. There are, there are one or two not so bad, mm-hmm. but for the most part, this was a bad series. Um, it was written by a woman, and I'm not picking on her because she's a woman, but it was written by a woman who didn't come from within the, the realm of comics, and I think... She was given the job because they wanted to expand their their list of creators to include women writing female characters. Um, they had already done it before with when they hired a woman named Sharon Wright to write Black Canary series in Action Comics Weekly, and that was not good. Um, so they brought in this other woman named Sarah Byam, and she did some interesting things, but ultimately I don't think she necessarily had a good grasp of the character. I don't. I don't know that she was ever very interested in the character, and I don't think the type of stories she wanted to tell were necessarily good fits for the medium of comics. Couple that with the art, which is mostly 11 of the 12 issues were by a guy, or 10 of the 12 issues were by a guy named Trevor Von Eden. Now, Trevor Von Eden's work in the 70s and 80s was really, really good. 
Um, he did some, he did an amazing, I think, Batman annual with Rachel Ghoul as the villain. Uh, he did some Black Canary and Green Arrow backups from World's Finest. In fact, he created the character known as Count Vertigo. Um, he, he was a decent artist, but by 1993, he got to a point in his career where I don't know if he just didn't care or his art style had evolved. It basically, he, he kind of took the Frank Miller style from the Dark Knight Returns where everybody is already a little bit inflated and put like a gas pump in oh, them gosh. so they look just like these balloon creatures. Um, there are times where he's drawing these characters and you can't tell if you're looking at a man or a woman and it's it's bad. So anyway, that, that's just context for the whole series and I have reviewed every one of those issues on my podcast. You can hear me sound very exasperated in my reviews of these. Um, but when we get to Black Canary issue 10, this is, as I said, part two of a three-part story arc that guest starred primarily the Huntress. And in issue nine, the Huntress comes to Seattle where Black Canary lives, and she's trying to enlist Black Canary's help to bring down a human trafficking ring that is linked to this sort of Middle Eastern sultan named Scimitar. Scimitar spelled with a Y because it was the 90s. <laughs> Uh, and issue nine ended with Black Canary being kidnapped, put on Scimitar's boat, and taken off to his fictional Middle Eastern country to be part of his harem. Huntress gets dumped in the you know the river or the harbor, has to swim to shore. And issue ten picks up with her uh, saving herself, needing help. She knows that she has to follow Black Canary to this fictional land known as Karistan. The thing is, it has a very strict code, and as a woman, she would not be able to operate on her own in, in Karistan, because women are second-class citizens would be being generous um, based on their, their sort of codes of conduct and their culture. So she essentially needs a male escort to help her get to this country and rescue Black Canary. And at this point in Huntress's career, there's a limit to how many male characters that she can ask, and she's not going to ask Batman. So in the middle of this issue, where we see her going is she heads to this nice Italian restaurant, um, which is actually owned by a sort of retired, sort of in, hire, in hiding former mafia boss who had connections to Huntress's father. If you know Huntress's character, this post-crisis version, Helena Bertinelli, um, her family had mob ties. So she uses her connections from her father to this old gangster to find out that he's running a numbers racket in the back of his restaurant. And she walks back there, and it looks like a telemarketing center. He's just got a couple of banks of computers with people on the computers looking through data, and she's able to bluff her way into grabbing one of these computers. Uh, And on page 11, she sits down at one of the computers, and she thinks to herself, as a woman, I can't travel in Karistan alone. And there's only one place I can th- I can think of to find the person I need. And we see her tapity tap 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 on the computer. <laughs> and she types in the code name Oracle. Mm-hmm. Cut two. In the Gotham apartment of Barbara Gordon, the woman known as the Oracle responds to the Huntress's call. And we see Barbara's bathroom where she is taking a nice bubble bath. Uh, we see her wheelchair in the background. We hear the buzzing of her, you know, her text blast from the the uh the uh, Huntress trying to get in touch with her and Barbara thinks never fails get in the tub and the phone rings cut back to the screen that Huntress was looking at and we get a little bit of their exchange just 
typed as like little text speak because it saves the artist. Uh, and Oracle asks, how can I help you? Hunter says, I need to find Nightwing. Did you call the Titans? He's gone, left weeks ago, maybe for good. And Oracle says, okay, give me the details and I'll see what I can do. And from there we cut to the Flash, Wally West, trying to get in touch with uh, Dick Grayson and put him in touch with this. And from there we end up seeing Huntress and Nightwing team up. They go to Karistan and issue 11 is the culmination of them trying to rescue Black Canary while she, in fact, rescues herself. It all leads to a fight with Scimitar and it's a lot of, you know, smoke, violence, explosions, and typical 90s fighting, except drawn pretty crappily. And you didn't like it? Um, <laughs> yeah, go figure. Um, it was an interesting story. I, I, if, you, if, you, if you just explained to me the plot, I would be all in. I think it's a really interesting plot, and it's cool to use these characters for this kind of international story, busting up a slave trafficking ring with a lot of geopolitical overtones. That all sounds great. But when you read it, phew, the dialogue isn't great. The art is really, really subpar. Now, I will say, I, I said that Sarah Byam did not have a good handle on Black Canary's character, despite the fact that she wrote most of the issues. I actually think in issue nine, that that's issue is narrated by Huntress, and I think she had a much better handle on Huntress. I don't know if, if she ever would have taken a stab at writing that character, but I think she had a lot more fun with the personality of Huntress than she ever did with Black Canary. Um, but anyway, this is the Bad Girl the Oracle <laughs> podcast, and as I explained, Oracle, Barbara Gordon herself, appears yes. in one, one panel. panel. Yeah. So... You, you asked me to reread this, these three issues. Which, I didn't ask you to reread all three. <laughs> you're, I'm, I'm joking. Okay. I would have done it myself for the podcast. But yeah, Babs appears in one panel uh, in the middle of this issue. I guess you could say one and a half because her her dialogue is right. is written out on the screen of the second mm. panel. So yes, so that is her involvement and. and <laughs> For, uh, sorry, I interrupted okay. you, but I, w- I was going to say I, the reason that I did want to talk to you about this, the reason that it's at all relevant is within this story, as crappy as it is, Barbara Gordon is instrumental in putting Huntress and Nightwing together for the first mm-hmm. time. This is the first time that Helena and Dick Grayson get together, mm-hmm. and that will have some long-term ramifications, as your listeners might know, depending on how much you've, you've foreshadowed where the characters all go, yeah. so... Babs put them in the same room together for the first That's time. That's unfortunate for her. There's a bit of uh, an overlap between uh, Huntress and Dick and then Dick and uh, Babs. So mm-hmm. there is some romantic thing. But yeah, I was also thinking that this is also almost kind of a precursor to Birds of Prey sort of situation where, you know, a little bit you've got some, you yeah. know, Huntress, Oracle, and Black Canary were sort of the big three, uh, mm-hmm. give or take. And you've got Oracle playing the part she usually plays, and then of course you've got some some field operatives. So I also like to I kind of like that, just that there's a precursor to it. That that's a very good point. I I kind of didn't think about it because uh, Black Canary and Barbara don't have any page time right. together; they have no interaction. But this, yeah, this might have been the first comic where all three of them were in the same mm-hmm. issue. Um, unless, I mean, maybe some of the big crossover events, if like they were just in the background. But yeah, this might have been the first comic where all three of the characters were together. Yeah. 
or, or at least they all appear. Right. They, they're not all together. Yeah, they're all, yeah. They all appear in the same issue. Yeah. They're all part of the same story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and I think it's just, you know, we're, we're going to encounter, I think, a lot of these sorts of uh, or sort of appearance of Babs just where she's going to be helping people out and it's just going to continue to be widespread throughout the DC universe. And I think that's just the Oracle character since she is an information broker. She's going to be touching base with a lot of people. So, um Maybe in the future, they're not going to be quite as important to showcase them, but I thought that this one would be interesting to just point out what was it all about. So for completists, Barbara Gordon does appear in this issue, Black Canary issue 10. I can't in good conscience recommend you spend money on it. (laughs) But it's out there. It's available for digital on on Comixology. Um, I know you can find uh, paper copies. Hopefully you don't pay too much for them. Yeah, it's there. Well, if you're Professor Allen, you'll just look for a quarter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into the main one. Um, and hopefully this sort of wiped your your, uh, your palate clean, cleansed it from 10, I guess we'll, we'll say. I enjoyed it. We'll see what you have to say about it. But we're going to do Showcase 94, number 12. And the main story with Oracle in it is called A Little Knowledge. But this... Showcase also included Love at First Sight, which featured Ballistic, Loria, and Blood Pack, and another story called Lost Time, which featured Triumph. So, <laughs> basically minor characters that I wouldn't be able to tell you anything about. Uh, they, sort of just a general Ballistic and the Blood Pack, I think, came out of the DC Bloodlines, mm-hmm. which was an annual event in maybe 93, maybe 94. I don't remember which one. Um, Triumph was getting big around this time as part of uh, Justice League Task Force, I want to say. I don't have any use for it. When I, when I looked at this comic again, I, I refused to read either of the stories. I just I have no need okay, to. Okay, good for you. I just read the first one anyways. But thank you for your knowledge. You brought some, some stuff. Yeah. The cover date is December 1994. And as fans know, I, I don't go on that other website, so I don't know what the actual date was. Did you go on that other website? Okay, that's okay. <laughs> you don't even know what I'm talking about. Writer Scott Peterson, artist Brian Stelfree. So right away, two people that uh, you should know the names of. Colorist Mark Chiarello. And cover artist, I just wanted to shout out to uh, Dustin here, Kelly Jones. Dustin's not a fan of Kelly Jones. Uh, Barbara Gordon sits at her computer when she hears a knock on her door. After checking a screen that shows who is at her door, what a smart move, and seeing that no one's there, she opens the door to find a rat attached to the door with the knife. I actually looked at it a couple times because I thought it was a bat, but it's just the shadow. Did you have? Did you think it was a bat at all? You know what? Looking at it now, I can see why you yeah, think that. I guess shadows, I always yeah. just, I always just kind of assumed it was a rat because I seen the trope of rats being. Like stuck to right. doors with okay. knives, like so. But yeah, I because of the shot, I bet they were trying to imply that it might have been yeah. a bat. Yeah. So later, after doing some forensics on the knife, she gets her harassing phone call from some creep who was actually called a couple weeks before. She does a trace and finds that it was made from a payphone a couple miles away. She takes her mind off it by checking her email, and she gets one from Robin. She reflects on what a smart kitty is, and also thinks about the money that she is getting from Alfred and Tim, and wishing they weren't the only ones sending the checks. Hmm. Babs gets another phone call, and also gets a note, again attached to her door, that says, You're mine, written in blood on her door. Refusing to let it ruin her day, she goes shopping in order to talk with actual people who are not on a screen. 
On the way home, a bullet fires near her, and she does what she is able to get out of the way, which is actually not much. Uh, she gets another phone call from the creep, and then her dad, who is worried about her safety because he heard about the, the gunfire. Babs thinks back to her relationship with her uncle-slash-father, because yes, we are in post-crisis origin here. Uh, Batman's influence on her, and then, of course, the killing joke, because where are we if not mentioning that? She then reflects on how she became an information broker, explaining that she's doing more now than she ever did as Batgirl, helping superheroes, college professors, private investigators, etc. Babs calls Dick Grayson, who seems to be in the middle of his prodigal time, in order to get some advice on her fear. He offers help, but she wants to do this on her own. Shortly, someone calls her from the payphone outside her apartment, and the power goes out. Her generator kicks in, and she is able to identify who is coming for her, and then is recalling why he would come for her. She ends up regretfully hitting a button to call for Batman, and then lets a kingpin look-alike into her apartment. She pretends to be innocent, then goes to work on the large man, taking him out by squeezing some personal items <laughs> she she then calls for mr you mean like his cell phone and his um, a little more personal and attached to his body uh she then calls for mr armonk who enters and is surprised she knew it seems that babs helped to put armonk away two years ago for murdering five girls along with the help of a jill rizzo who recently died under mysterious circumstances Armuk admits to killing Jill and gets ready to kill Babs when she pulls out two Eskrima sticks and takes out Armuk while Batman actually is waiting in the wings. Babs wonders why Batman didn't come to help, but he says that it looked like she didn't need it, and she agrees that it was good to know that she can do it, though she hopes she doesn't have to do it again. But then again, it didn't feel bad at all. And that's where it ends. Well, well, well. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this showcase story? Well, the Triumph story is just awful. No, oh, my um, goodness. <laughs> um, well, first, the cover. I did want to mention the cover um, because this is this attracted me. Like When I was a kid in the 90s reading these issues, I probably saw this cover and recognized that, oh, Kelly Jones. I, I really liked Kelly Jones's art. I was big into the the Batman Dracula trade paperbacks that were coming out. Um, I just, I had the right mindset. Mm -hmm. So when I saw that art, I recognized it and I was like, oh, cool. He's doing the Joker and the Joker looks weird and he's got a gun on Batgirl. I was like, oh, I was like, and and like I was telling you, like, I think this was one of the first times I ever saw Oracle in comics. Um, So like my brain kind of made this thing. I was like, oh yeah, that's Barbara after she's been shot and paralyzed. Like, oh, cool. This is about her. Um, I expected to see Joker in the story, but you know, whatever. So yeah, I, I, I like the story. Uh, thank you for having me reread it because it, I probably haven't thought about it since 1994. Um, but it's an enjoyable story. Um, uh, looking at the arts, uh, I like Brian Stelfreeze. I, he's definitely channeling Jay Lee of this era, uh, heavy shadows, but, uh, it works. I remember as I was rereading it, uh, getting to the page, where is it? Is it page eight, page nine. Um, when we get the newspaper down there, because I had completely forgotten about the plot. I forgot about the reveal. But when she's looking at the newspaper and it says, you know, too many Batman, uh, private investigator dies in fire. I was like, hmm, I bet that has something to do with the reveal at the end. Yeah. And yeah, I was happy that I, I picked up on that mystery. I, I have a feeling that I flipped through the issue in the story, in the store before I bought it. 
and I probably bought it just because of page 10 when we get uh, Barbara kind of flashing back to her history and going over these things, um, you know, being adopted by Jim. And just that middle panel where we see her hiding in his office and Batman's silhouette up against the wall and the crazy... Uh, I'm trying to think, like... It's like it's like a, a silhouette of Dracula in an old Nosferatu right, movie. Yeah, uh, his silhouette with the with the hands kind of up like spider legs and claws, and the jagged bend of the ear. Uh, it's it's this amazing kind of silhouette that is monstrous, but just very very fun to look at. And it strikes me that this this seems like a re envisioning of the scene that we had previously talked mm-hmm. about on the Secret Origins mm-hmm. podcast. Um, so I, I really, really like that. I have a feeling I flipped through this in the store and said, saw that panel. I was like, yep, I'm buying this. Absolutely. So I would have I put down the uh, the $1.95 for this issue. <laughs> uh, yeah. By the way, I, I did look it up, and the actual release oh, date was October 25th, which is the birthday of Pablo Picasso. Oh, wow. That was exciting. Which I also looked up. I did not know that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it very much is an intriguing cover just because, you know, this light shining down upon Barbara and it's it's holding or it's uh, very much putting that gun into shadow, uh, which is interesting, almost as if she's moving beyond it. It's in the past, it's, but back, back, goes back be- there. Yeah, it's, it's very intriguing. It feels like a weird stage spotlight. Mm-hmm. Like I'm expecting her to give a monologue. Right, yeah. Like she's, like she's in a play. And this is sort of like the, some weird action going on in her background. Like, there's something very confessional mm-hmm. about the the lighting in the Absolutely. cover, the way it sort of gives this halo around mm-hmm. her. Um, and I, I don't know if that's accurately represented in the story. I don't know if that theme is necessarily reflected. If that's the interpretation yeah. that I'm getting from. I don't think that's a theme that is shown in this story. Well, I mean, there are confessions, I think, of her fear, like that that big open talk between her and Dick and and fear and getting past these things. The fact that she has the scare with the guns and, you know, the vid screen, which I think was an obvious nod to the killing joke because now she can visually see who's behind the door from another angle. I, Mm -hmm. I think she is really putting out, you know, how is she feeling and then moving past it and becoming stronger. So in that sense, you know, there could be a little bit of that to reflect uh, what the cover is. Uh, I, I really liked this. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, a showcase. I've read a couple of them. And I thought, oh, I, I don't know how, how she'll be treated here. But I really liked it. I thought it was interesting that she's placed in a showcase with relatively unknown characters. I'll just sort of say that just because I feel like they're not A-listers. But, you know, she's at the forefront of the issue. And that's something that for Barbara Gordon herself is really unheard of because in the detective comics, she'd sort of be in the middle or the back. And there'd be other stories that would be in front of her. But, you know, it's got connections to her time in Suicide Squad. It's got a connection to the hacker files because that's when she shot the um, the government agent that she tells uh, Dick about. And I just felt like um, in hacker files, you really see, I think, the heart of her, sort of her weaknesses and, and what is it like to be in a wheelchair. And this one, I felt like it really pushed her forward and showed that despite what's going on with her and despite what had happened to her in her past she's really moving forward she feels like she's more productive now as oracle than batgirl 
and uh, then you see her physically being capable of taking down this huge guy that really looked like the kingpin and then another guy that was about to shoot her and I thought this is really I think we've really transitioned to this new era of Oracle I would say this is the point that we're sort of moving from her being a victim to her really standing on her own now and and moving forward and not looking back as much yeah that is sort of my my one problem with the story is the conflicts at the end um, first of all, I think it's weird that she has to fight two different guys. <laughs> Instead of just one. Uh, first, first we get, as you say, like this guy who looks like yeah. the kingpin, just big, big, bald, brute muscle that she disables physically, which is great. I love that. She grabs him by his personal items um, and levels him with a fist to the nose. That's great. Mm-hmm. But then the real bad guy shows up, this Mr. Armonk, and... He says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get in close to you and let you beat me up, so I'm going to shoot you. And he draws a gun. But she still takes him down. Okay, she uses a scream of sticks, but she still takes him down in very much the same way. It's this physical hand-to-hand combat thing. And I, I don't like if he's If he's using the gun, then the whole point of that is he's got distance on her. But for her to use the Escrima sticks, no, he doesn't have distance on her. He was close enough to still kill her with his bare hands. And I think we already saw her take down one bad guy mm-hmm. with her with her fists mm-hmm. and her you know the, the physical training that she's used. If he's going to pull a gun on her, then the emphasis should be on her limited mobility, that she can't run from that. She can't jump out of the way and she can't punch him because he's too far away. I would have rather her seen her, I would have rather seen her use her brain to somehow outwit him or to get him to drop the gun or to trick him into walking through a doorway and like sealing a a panic room door on his Mm -hmm. hand. Something. It just felt like, it felt like they, they kind of undercut the, the very threat. Like, if she was going to beat him up with that, what was the point of giving him the gun in the first place and having him give the speech about, well, I know better, I'm not going to get my own hands bloody, I'm just going to shoot you old-fashioned-like. Yeah, yeah. so I, I thought... It was cool because, like, that... Ultimately, the point of this story was to show that she wouldn't be victimized again, that she can open her door... Mm-hmm without fear that somebody is going to destroy her life, that she's able to defend herself, even in this new physically limited position. So that was fine. I just thought when you break down the details of how she does this, I didn't like the fights Mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Yeah, I would say my negative would just be the the villains and sort of the connection to them. I felt like the backstory wasn't as fleshed out uh, well, number one, I'm actually surprised Baz would not already be investigating someone who was calling her. Um, she thought it was just like a mistake the first time, but, you know, it kept happening. Mm-hmm. And I thought even the first time, I think your security is probably supposed to be tight enough that that doesn't happen. So I do wonder about that. But how did she help turn in our monk? You know, was it as a public servant? Because she does question, you know, was it as Oracle, was it as Backrow, was it as Barbara Gordon? She was wondering who he was going after. And I felt like that wasn't really fleshed out as much. And mm, I, I, I kind of wanted more details on how her and Jill uh, Rizzo, you know, took him down and, and what was the connection there. 
But you pointed out earlier that, you know, there was that newspaper article that said something about that fire. And then when she went to the supermarket, there was also a, a bubble talking about our monk uh, being wet and being let go after killing five girls. So I did like those little details that sort of gave hints, but you don't really know what you're looking at uh, until afterwards. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, this is, this is set up like, this is a horror movie. This is a classic horror yeah. movie of don't answer the phone. Absolutely. Don't. It's, it's all the things that they make fun mm-hmm. of. And those little tidbits are like... You know, the couple that turns on the radio and it's like, oh, yeah, an escaped mental patient uh, just, you know, has been spotted in this area. Oh, turn the radio off and let's make out in the car. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, terrible things happen after yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but you know, the this, this showcase does a nice job, I think, of, of going through her history very briefly, you know, in a way that you don't realize they're sort of setting up this character and giving you backstory. She, you know, she makes a joke about her brown belt in judo. And then she also says that she she took the Gotham bar exam and passages for kicks and giggles. And I feel like that sort of talks a little bit. It may may not. But, you know, it just reminds me of when she had a Ph.D. pre-crisis and, you know, she was a congresswoman and everything. It just shows her intelligence. So I just liked how there are lots of abilities that were showcased here, like her detective abilities, her computer abilities and her intelligence and things like that. Uh, Did you have any thoughts on the comment about who was sending the checks to her? I guess my, my um, one that I really was attracted to was uh, this one. Still, as much as I love Robin, I wish I didn't get the feeling that he and Alfred were the only ones sending the mysterious checks I received. And I immediately thought of Bruce, and I wondered what we could imply from her current relationship with Bruce from that. Uh, we've seen them interact a couple times, and it's not been um, very good. There's sort of been some tension there. And I wonder if, um, I don't know. Did, did you read anything into this? What, do you have any thoughts on I, this? That, that, line kind of, uh, I, that line kind of flew under my radar. I didn't, but now that I'm reading it, yeah, I, I like that. And I like the implication. And I think it, despite their, the, where they were in their relationship at this point, because Bruce wasn't even Batman at this mm-hmm. point, as, as we right? see in the story. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it still rings true that... Bruce would never stop supporting his family, mm-hmm. even even when he's fighting with Dick, even when he's fighting with Barbara. You know, he's going to make sure that they are taken care of. Like, even if, I mean, as as a sort of father would, like, even if they, they've cut ties with, you know, a son or daughter, it's still coming from that sort of old money perspective Mm -hmm. and him being as rich as he is he would always take care of them and especially even if he doesn't approve of what Barbara is doing knowing who she is and the guilt that I mean he wouldn't he he still as much as Jason was the victim that he feels guilty for he feels the same way about Barbara that it was it happened on his watch Mm -hmm. it was his villain who did this terrible thing to her that he wasn't able to stop. So he's going to own that for the rest of his life, and the way he's going to do it is making sure that Barbara will want for mm-hmm. nothing. If this is what she wants, he might not like it, but he'll, he'll take care mm-hmm. of her. So Yeah. Well, what grade would you give this issue? The story, like we said, it's, it's an interesting... I like the idea of it. I like using Barbara in this type of old conventional urban legend horror type of story um, and using it as a springboard of showing how she won't be victimized again. And this is 
in a way, sort of her catharsis and her realizing that she doesn't, ha- she won't be afraid like this anymore. I like the idea behind the story, the actual execution. I think, I think we saw there were some problems with it. They may have dumbed down her capabilities in order to create suspense that probably shouldn't have been there. She should have been on top of this guy the whole time. And we don't, again, like you said, we don't know who he was targeting. Was he targeting Barbara Gordon? Was he targeting Oracle? Did he know this connection? All of these are questions that I don't think were really answered adequately. The arts, I like it, but it's very stylized. It might not be for everybody. It, It does feel very dated, but I don't think it's necessarily like archaic. I would probably give this a B or B plus. Gotta give it out of 10, man. Gotta give it out of 10. Oh, we're going to score the 10? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, then it would be an 8. An 8 out of 10, he says. And yeah. I am going to... Oh, that's fine. You know, you are free to grade it however you want. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I just uh, really liked it. And I guess I'm just thinking about this in comparison to Hacker Files and where she was with her mind um, and her emotions there. And I just feel like this is such a strong characterization of her. The downside is I think the villains and just that part of the story wasn't as fleshed out. You know, this is, I mean, to be in a showcase and be at the forefront of the issue, I think is great for Barbara Gordon. So I'm super excited. So 9 out of 10 bats for me. Okay, well, you might think that my score was low, <laughs> but giving this an 8 is still <laughs> really high. 6 or 7 points higher than I would give the Black Canary story oh, that I reviewed earlier. Man. So. Well, <sighs> I think that's that's it. Seems like we've only just begun. We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way We've only begun I do have a couple questions for you. Number one, about 20 minutes ago, it sounded like you were in a war zone. What was going on? Um, that was probably a dog running around <laughs> getting excited about something okay. uh, and me shifting and trying to quiet the dog and trying to silence my mic, which I don't think I did correctly. <laughs> I just wondered. Um, so well, I heard a child if any of those, If any of those... Um, Weird sound effects came over. No, those were those are my flashbacks to Nam. Oh, okay. I, I get those sometimes when I talk about comics. Okay, yeah. I just wondered. My other thing was sometimes when I listen to your podcast, I hear a little jingle jangling, and I heard it recently. Do you have a dog on your lap? I've got two dogs that they're not in my lap. They're too big for okay. that. But they, they tend to get uh, excited. I, I think I think my apartment is haunted. I think they see ghosts. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I've actually always so. wondered, and now that you're here. I figured I could ask you. So it all works out. Well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Please tell listeners where they can find you. 
Well, as they will probably find out by the time this episode comes out, I am now part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Um, the the boys Rob and Shag have expanded their reach and brought in some of my shows. So I'm going to have three podcasts coming in February. Uh, the first one is the Secret Origins podcast, which I've been doing since last year. Uh, that was on a, a couple months of hiatus so I could recharge my batteries. But that is coming back in February. Uh, another one is Give Me Those Star Wars, which is a Star Wars-centric podcast, as you can probably imagine from the name. Um, I had previously done a different one called Dead Boff and Spies, uh, and I wanted the name to be a little bit more on point. Uh, so I'm, re- I'm renaming that podcast. Uh, that's going to be coming out of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And the one that is probably most appropriate for this show and the reason I'm your guest uh, I, as I said, I used to do a Black Canary podcast called Flowers and Fishnets. You can still find that on iTunes, and you can find the blog associated with it at Black Canary Fan. But the new show coming out of the Fire and Water Network will be The Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Uh, I am I'm increasing. So the goal of that will be to have two episodes a month, one devoted to Black Canary stories and one devoted to Zana stories. And the first episode will combine them by reviewing the original graphic novel Black Canary oh, and Blood Spell story. that came out a couple years ago. Yeah. It is a great story. I love that. And I've reviewed it on the blog, but I haven't talked about it. I'm excited to do that soon. Well, it has been a pleasure. It's strange because normally Jack just keeps on talking and we're done. You and I are done. We just get down to business. I, f- I feel there's, there's emptiness in, in me now that, that because we missed him, because he wasn't here, I, there's a lack that I just, I, I don't know if anything will ever be able to, to fill that. You know, I might go back and change my, my answer. I would definitely oh. save Rob because Shag oh, left wow. us hanging. Okay. Well, it's good to know. I hope yeah. he listens to this show and sees what he missed. <laughs> yeah, hope so. So, well, thank you very much for having me on the show. This was a Absolutely, great time. Thank you. Hello. Hey, man, what a crazy day! You would not believe what I went through to get here. So, sorry I'm late. I'm here. I'm all set. We're good. All right. <sighs> all right, guys. Ryan. Stella. Hello. Anyone? Bueller? Now it's time for some listener email. Mail time! Mail time! Mail time! Mail here! Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. The first two are actually comments from the Batman Universe website, and the first comment is on episode 110, and it's from Ian Miller. He says, having just read through all of Simone's Batgirl run, I have to say, I know she sort of broke up with Ricky at the end of that story arc, but it seems even more like all of Babs' writers, Simone, the Eternal team, and the new Batgirl team, just should let Babs be Babs. Take a cue from Simone's own work with Barbara in Birds of Prey and have her learn and grow in her friendship and family, not her love life. I do like how Babs seems to have resolved her relationship with Frankie in number 46, so look forward to more of that direction heading into issue 50. I think Duke Thomas will become a y'all-clad lark. 
I think that would be really cool if he could get himself some real training. I also think Jim should learn who Batgirl is. Personally, I'm against keeping secrets from loved ones in superhero narratives. It's worse because they always say that they keep the secret to prevent their loved ones from danger, but the loved ones always end up in danger anyway, and they don't even know why. I have to say that if Stephanie Brown becomes a semi-regular member of Team Batgirl, that would go a long way towards me having a more positive outlook on the series. Well, thanks, Ian. I definitely agree with you about just letting Babs be Babs because she certainly has been shipped with several different people. I'm hoping that now, since she's somewhat in a relationship with Luke, that this sort of continues on. Uh, As for Duke Thomas being a yellow-clad lark, as we all, well, as people who are reading Batgirl uh, Batman know, it's sort of leading us to believe that he may be the new Robin, and I have some reservations about that. Obviously, he's his origin story very much mirrors Batman's own with his parents being gone, even though we've not really seen the bodies. So is dead really dead? But I just feel like, especially with Jim there, wouldn't it be awesome to have, and I said this on the Batman universe, wouldn't it be awesome to have Babs beat Robin, at least temporarily? And frankly, what about Damien? Damien didn't really retire. He's still Robin. He still has that uniform. It's just he's in another book, and he's on an island right now doing his own thing. But I feel like until you let go of the previous Robin, you kind of can't move on to the next one. But who knows? Maybe Duke Thomas will become Lark uh, and appear somewhere else. But we'll see. I agree with you about Jim knowing who Batgirl is, Barbara Gordon. I I, I think, well, his daughter. Hello. I I think that would be, obviously it would be, I think, tension. There would be tension on the relationship, but I also think that would help them grow. And just seeing how fun it was between Batman and Batgirl fighting against Livewire, I think just shows how how great it could be. And Stephanie Brown becoming a semi-regular member, I can kind of see it going in that direction, and I feel like maybe we're getting a new version of Birds of Prey we will see. The next comment is on episode 111, and that was the 6th anniversary episode, and it's also from Ian. He says, love this episode. These events are forgotten except for Nightfall until I read Dixon's run on Robin because of Stephanie Brown, Notch. I had no idea that Dick had been Batman before Morrison put him in the cowl. I can't wait, as I've said before, to get to the Birds of Prey era, but until then, these glimpses of Barbara integrating herself into the Bat family and the wider world of Gotham are fascinating, especially she Shedding light on this neglected era of bat canon. Well, thanks for listening to the sixth anniversary. That certainly was uh, just great to like a meeting of the minds, really, and and going over these great stories that you know, like you, I, I never really, uh, I may have heard of them. Zero Hour, I feel like I hadn't really heard of, but not had an experience with them and reading it. And it was great to read those '90s stories. And then my final email is from, it's actual email, it's uh, from Michael Ridge, and it's on the 6th anniversary show. He says, congratulations all on your Elseworlds, trademark, engagement to Shaq. I avoided most of these crossover events because I didn't have the money to commit to so many issues of characters that I wasn't following. My budget wouldn't stretch that far. Now, hearing commenters say that the main series wasn't much, but the XX tie-ins were great stories, doesn't really fire me up to look for the trade paperbacks either. Yeah, I uh, I think you just have to be... Well, there's just got to be a reason, right, for why you're reading this. And for me, I knew Babs was appearing. There was a sale on Comixology was another one. And I also knew that these were big moments, uh, especially Nightfall and prodigal or big moments in batman history since i'm on the batman universe i feel like it's a good idea to sort of brush up on 
the, the back history of the Dark Knight. So those are sort of reasons why. I, I really do recommend the Nightfall stuff. I think that would be great. And it just depends on how much you like Dick and Tim as for whether you go with Prodigal. But uh, 90s have been turning out to be um, fun stories. And, and I guess I'm learning more and more that people are a little tentative toward the 90s. So it's very interesting. I think it's just uh, different perspectives. And that is all the listener email that we have. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number 46 and Gotham Academy number 12 and 13. But now it is Zias' Radio Hour featuring Youth Gone Wild by Skid Row.
Nawate. My name is Stella, and I host Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I, along with my dear friend Donovan Morgan Grant, are going to be hosting a special Backroll to Oracle episode called The Minority Report. I'm putting the call out right now for anyone that identifies himself or herself as a minority to have a discussion centering around this question, are minorities portrayed properly in media? Now, Donovan Morgan Grant and I will be leading this discussion and would like your input. So whatever your nationality, ethnicity, gender identification, or sexual orientation, if you are interested in being a part of this conversation, please contact me at backrowtooracle at gmail.com. This discussion will take place in early 2016. Heterosexual white males need not apply. Thank you, and I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back, and here we are in the future. Now, there was some weird scheduling or uh, perhaps publishing issues, but if you notice, there was not a Gotham Academy, or Batgirl for that matter, in November. Of course, so then that sort of delayed uh, when I was going to talk about them, because I would have talked about them with probably Don and Josh for our second parter of the anniversary, but that didn't happen. So here I am, and uh, I was talking with someone, I believe it was Don, about, I, I, I don't know, I guess it's just me wanting, you know, one and one, so one back row, one Gotham, Gotham Academy, but I don't really ever like doing more than one of a particular book. Perhaps it's me being lazy. I don't know because, you know, I got to type out more and, and think about it more. But it's also just because I, I sort of want to sit there and consider, ponder whatever you may have over one particular story of that particular book. And, and I feel like two of them, well, it's too much going on. But hey, you got to get with it, right? I mean, if you think about it, I've been doing multiple reviews throughout this this show's tenure, so just have to get over it. Now, this is a bit of a bummer just because I feel actually dragged in three different directions, even more if we count Batgirl's splintering effect. Well, I guess I'll just save it. But there, there are really three different stories going on with Batgirl and Gotham Academy, so you really are about to hear three completely different reviews. So let's start with Batgirl number 46, Gang War. Writers Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart, artist Babs Tarr, breakdowns on pages 13 through 16, Rob Haynes, and colorist Sergey Lapointe. Babs and Nadima are going to different buildings in Burnside, which happen to be gang-controlled. Now, these gangs are driving out the residents, and Babs and Nadima are investigating the reasons, potentially blaming the building developers. Bab seems so worn out that she has even forgotten that they have numbers on another building. It's not just two, but three. She doesn't think her busy life is going to slow down at all. And guess what? She's right. Because that very same night, she drops in on a gang trying to kick a resident out and tells one of the members that his mother is looking for him because she talked with her earlier in the issue. And then suddenly back row surrounded, but a mysterious man comes out of an alleyway. Hey, you can always trust those types, right? Tases one of the, the gang members, and then she finishes off the rest. 
Now, this mysterious man, whose name is Lewis, tells Batgirl to meet him at 11 at the Docklands the following night. The next night, Babs is rudely awakened at 7.51 by Frankie, and she rushes to go to the Docklands while simultaneously mentioning something about Greg, who's going to drop in and stay while looking for an apartment. Frankie shows her her upgrade, finally. Babs freaks out, of course. Frankie shakes her shame finger, and Babs accepts her into the Hero Club. Yes, my head is spinning as well. Batgirl and the talking motorcycle from Detective Comics, you know, meet Lewis. And he tells her about the trouble Spoiler is in, who happens to be in the crosshairs of the Hazigawa family. Now, Aiko Hazigawa would not want Spoiler hurt, but her men think that she is a loose end. Uh, by the way, this is all happening really in Catwoman, if you're wondering who the devil is Aiko Hazigawa. Batgirl finds Spoiler in the midst of a fight after tracking her with the device that she actually gave Spoiler in Annual Number 3. Spoiler holds her own until Mokuegeki, a mixture of Wolverine, Riot Black, and some oddball from the Matrix. I mean, red pill, blue pill people. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Now, Steph chooses red, of course. But this guy uh, is too much. Bad things. Too much, too much. As Josh Bertoni would say. And they really need to team up, Batgirl and Spoiler, and take this guy down. And they do. And they defeat him. After the fight, Babs brings Steph to stay at Luke Fox's place and tells her not to go out. Babs and Luke later go out on a date, and Babs talks about how much is on her plate, her nightmares of the shadowy figure, and also she's drawing on a napkin, but not really a napkin, the plans of the Negahedron from memory. Luke sees this and says it could be big billion dollar big. Nadima texts and shares a video of the gang member that Batgirl told to go home and he happens to have been arrested and his mother is blaming Babs as someone gave anonymous information to the police which tied the gang related activity together and there's threat of more information being leaked. And of course Babs is horrified. Next up police and thieves. Well people I have just one question for you. Who is Greg? I mean, you know, I'm all about new characters, and, and we want to bring people into the fold. But this is like a bizarre, out-of-left-field character. Now, if there were a Greg mention along, you know, Babs talks about her, her friend Greg from high school who ran into the, the tetherball pole and got knocked out or something. Hey, I would accept that. This is the first time I have heard of Greg, and all of a sudden he's coming to stay, and it seems so new and flustering for her because she's stressed out. I don't know. It just seems super random. And I wonder, hey, Babs, you're letting someone else stay at your apartment again without consulting your roommate. Do you think back to Dinah? Do you remember all that stuff that happened? Frankie just accepts it this time. But hey, I would be like, hey, we need to look at the roommate agreement paper that we signed. But perhaps there wasn't one. So that's my main question, friends. If you know who Greg is, just send me an email. 
this is such a disjointed issue with too many plot points going on that each never really get their footing and I honestly think could have each been the sole focus of the issue. So, number one, Nadima and Babs are figuring out the housing problem and then Batgirl investigates. Hey, that's full issue potential. Not to mention you can find something similar over at Ms. Marvel. Cough, cough. What are Nadima and Babs actually doing? Does this involve Babs' thesis and how? Those are some questions related to it. But that's right there. Could have been issue 46. Number two, Babs and Frankie and a team up. Full issue potential. As it stands, that interaction was rather poor. Uh, Frankie makes good points. You know, we've debated it. I've debated with Donovan about this. It sort of sort of shows up in We Are Robin number three. It's been a theme, people. But I don't think it's realistic that Babs would just drop it so quickly, then make nice and be like, hey, let's go out. We're going to put you in danger. I still have a bit of a problem with it. I don't think it's a good idea for Frankie to be uh, connected, literally and figuratively, especially with the threat, I feel, the ever-looming threat of digital babs still being out there so that's full issue number two again number 46 Uh, number three babs going to help spoiler full issue potential not to mention crossover potential with catwoman as it stands lewis is a random instrument used only to further plot purposes standing sketchily in the alleyway helps her out a little bit says hey lewis meet me they meet gives information lewis is gone but we could have set something else up would have been very interesting. Had a crossover with Catwoman, maybe. Bringing the Hazigawas into the Batgirl Burnside world. But that didn't happen. So all those three things. Notice how they honestly could have been expanded into one full issue. But instead we've got, oh, these plot points that go around and, and really made me dizzy. And, and I just felt like I, I, I couldn't focus on one before another one came knocking on my brain. Hey, let's talk about the villain. Boy, howdy. Not as much of a fan. I'm not sure why it is. Uh, First of all, yes, he does in fact look like Wolverine. I believe it was someone either via Twitter or Facebook showed this and like, hey, Batgirl's teaming up or or, look, there's a Wolverine-Batgirl crossover. And I thought, wow, in fact there is because, of course, he has the razor claws. Now, the Hazigawas, obviously, they are of uh, Japanese descent. And I, I think we're going with that, you know, going that way. The family, of course, was uh, attacking Steph. And I think there's an opportunity for a really threatening villain that could have come through. And I, I know that this is a lighter book, so maybe it, you know, got to lighten up the tone of the villain to a certain extent. But I don't know. It, it's the mask, I think, that, that makes it the weirdest. The claws, I think you could have substituted with an actual sword perhaps and and i don't think it'd be cliche i mean obviously japanese you may think samurai and ninjas and things like that but it's so heavily embedded in the culture that why not pay attention to it uh so the mask is just goofy and and i can't really take him seriously and uh, the tattoos and everything the body art uh the whole ensemble just sort of reminded me of riot black he wasn't as obnoxious i mean he barely said anything of course the red pill blue pill well it's red card blue card right blue is suffocation red was blood which all makes sense in the colorful world and that was a fun little skit because steph chose red and people got excited she's like yay what did i win that was fun but i'm also looking at him and i'm wondering you know why 
can't Babs take him out herself? Think of all the other people that she was taking out, but no, she says that, hey, he's too big for either of us to take alone. We need to team up. Is that a boost of morale for Steph? Or, you know, did she really think that? Because I don't really believe it. So not as happy with the villain of that section of the story. Why is Babs sketching the Negahedron? I mean, she even says that it's not a good idea. You know when you do this that that drawing's going to get lost or someone's going to have it. And we know that there's such dangerous potential with this. We spent an entire annual, of course, chasing it down and things like that. So, wow, let's let's think about that. Is this the, the center of all these plots, the shadow plot and all that? Who knows? And speaking of the shadow is it Omac? I mean, look at the, kind of have a, a red ring, if you see it, uh, if you look closely at this image. Is it Brother I, which has been a villain sort of in the Batman Beyond universe? Is it Digital Babs? Did she get a body? Remember in issue 41, we had those worshippers try to get her a body. And they kind of had, well, anyways, the sort of the master of them all had kind of a, a red light or, or central node. I don't even know how to explain it. But, you know, could it be Digital Babs coming back and, and we're circling back to that particular story point? Because honestly, you know, the internet, when you delete something, it's not deleted. So you think you destroyed her, but she's not there. And I think the Frankie thing, it's just too dangerous, too dangerous. There's also a, a question as to how Babs' information, again, got out again. And there seems to be an obvious answer to that, which is Digital Babs. This is how it happened before. So, ooh, I don't know. And I, I'm not sure really what I feel about, you know, Digital Babs, if she were to pop up again. Is it too soon? Is this going to be the villain? You know, you've got Batman and Joker. Joker would pop up repeatedly. But is Babs' greatest enemy herself? And so we're going to see that repeatedly pop up until she finally puts a stop to it. I'm not, I'm not sure yet where I stand on that, but all this is getting me nervous as to thinking that she's going to return. I'm also wondering if we're leading up to a Birds of Prey revival, especially with the solicitation of 49. You know, thus Frankie coming out, as it were, spoilers popping up. Maybe other people are going to start to get together. And I think also to myself, and a good question potentially for you listeners out there, is the Babs of this era, this Burnside Babs, is she team mate or team qualified um do you think that she would work well in a team and if so what would her potential position be number one there's already a big role reversal frankie would most likely be the oracle again we're sort of i don't know punched in the throat each time she keeps wanting to come up with a name and can't really spit it out i just wanted to spit it out already but so she would be the the person on home base. She's saying or, or relaying the orders and things like that. Babs could potentially be a team leader. Now, if we bring in people like Harper Rowe or Spoiler, Cassandra Kane, you know, which I, I think that was always a hope. It would be interesting to see these team dynamics because Babs would be the veteran of this rookie team and that gets me a little bit nervous just because you know team membership sort of went in and out depending on who was on the birds of prey team at the time and and you know some people would just pop up and then go away Uh, kind of like power girl is just an example of that and but you always had sort of the mainstays and the two people at the center were of course dinah and Barbara, and they were playing two different roles, but they were the seniority, and 
it was great to have that consistency but when you have one senior person with a bunch of of green people kind of gets me a little bit concerned so i'm not sure right now what path we are leading and is it too much to put all these people in one book in the Batgirl book or is it time to start a new birds of prey book that's another good question Finally, I'm just concerned overall that we're going the route, not only digital Babs, but just going the route of Babs being persona non grata once again, because I feel like we just did that. So we end this issue with someone being upset at her. Ugh. So, ugh. I am sorry that I didn't enjoy this issue more, but honestly, I think that there are some pretty blatant issues with it. And there's room for improvement. I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 bats. Next up is Gotham Academy number 12. There's no title page, which is very bizarre. I looked several times. I couldn't find it. Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher. Artist Carl Kershaw. Colorist Michelle Asarasacorn. And Sergey Lapointe. Maps gives an account of Kyle's whereabouts up to the time of his disappearance to the cops, and then she feigns emotional distress in order to run out of the room and come up with a plan to find her brother. Maps and Olive come up with a plan to use Catherine as a stand-in for Maps, and this Maps is one who likes bread and lacks her father's acting abilities. They then get picked up by Colton and Pomeline in a stolen vehicle that we later find out is Professor Hammer's. On the way to Arkham, Pomeline fills Olive in on some research that she's been conducting on Calamity, and she blurts out, in a rather uncaring manner, that Calamity killed her husband. Once at Arkham, the group leaves Olive as lookout since she's considered a liability by all of them. Inside the asylum, Pomeline regrets what she said, and outside, Olive sees a shadow of Calamity and makes her way inside another part of the asylum and passes the symbol that has been popping up throughout the book that shows Arkham Asylum. The gang find Kyle locked in a room on the edge of a chasm. I mean, think Game of Thrones here, Tyrion locked up in the Sky Room, or whatever that was called. They use the key pieces they found and help pull Kyle up before he falls to his death. Elsewhere, Olive also makes her way inside a room and finds... Professor Hugo Strange. Dramatic reverb. He says that Calamity is alive inside of Olive. that she was his patient once. Sybil refused him access to Calamity because she wanted a normal life for Olive, but he wants Olive to take up the cloak and become Calamity. Olive goes into a rage and accuses him of killing her mother, and Strange blathers on about tunnels, what she hid there, and then he screams is gone and the place is on fire. That's all we see. The rest of the group arrives and Olive says Calamity saved her. The group leads right before another part of the asylum collapses, taking Hammer's car with it. And then the group goes through a nice, leisurely stroll through the tunnels. 
The next day, all of happens upon Professor McPherson and Ham, and Ham actually growls at her, and McPherson offers to be an ear to her, but all thinks that she is finally whole for the first time in a long time and is not ready to talk. Next, Robin War. Well, 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 people, mark this in your little diaries or journals. I called it strange. Hugo Strange. Didn't I say he was behind all this? He's a guy not to trust? No doubt. And again, I wonder why don't people do background checks when they're about to be uh, hiring someone to work with children because this happened before with Professor Milo. So, uh, hello. Now, I do wonder about Strange uh, kidnapping Kyle. Uh, I assume he did it to get Olive to come to Arkham, which, hey, brilliant, it worked out. But how? He's not the most in-shape fellow. We've got Kyle, you know, who plays tennis, and that's actually a pretty rigorous sport because you're running back and forth. I guess I'm just trying to figure out at what point Hugo Strange kidnapped Kyle and how it happened. I don't know if we'll ever know. We'll just kind of have to accept that maybe he popped up in the locker room, used chloroform, and dragged him off. Who knows? Is Strange dead? Ooh. You know, off-panel land is a scary place. This, at least, you know, it's kind of off-panel land, but not really, because you see a panel, you see a screen, but it's a scream, but it's black, you know, so something happens. Is he dead? Is he gone? Who can say? Olive tells her friends that Calamity saved her, and I'm wondering, does she truly believe this, or is this a lie because she doesn't want the others to know that she, in fact, is sort of embracing, whether consciously or subconsciously, the Calamity identity. Will Olive go down a dark path? Is this a big transitional moment issue for Olive? Ham certainly seems to think so. Given the choice between Kyle and Calamity, boy, did I find this interesting. And Kyle's life is on the line, people. Olive chooses Calamity. What does that say about her? It's not... I guess you could almost say it's the love of a mother, but... I feel like in her heart, she really believes that her mother is dead, but it's sort of this this doubt that she can't shake. But Kyle is over there. Her mother can sort of take care of herself. Again, she's got a friend known as Killer Croc. Why not go to a high school boy who was kidnapped and help save him? Pomeline and Olive are friends. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, Pomeline mentions that she says the F word. She says friends. And talks about uh, wanting to protect them and, and <laughs> wanting the best for them, almost. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a wonderful moment. But what a, the worst way to ever tell someone that, hey, you're, I consider you my friend. Um, I mean, she revealed to Olive that her mother killed her husband. And it is a foot and mouth, and even I get that. Uh, and I wish she feels guilty later on. But gotta think about that. Gotta think about that there, Pomeline. Catherine and her lack of acting abilities was pretty funny. Uh, I like bread. Uh, that's it. And then Maps is like, yeah, she's so good. I do like bread. But you'd think, you know, being an entity either connected to or at least related to Clayface, that she would have some knowledge of acting. Maybe it's good that the director never allowed her to try out for a part or be a member of the company. Now, there is a mention of glycerin. Maps has always had glycerin ready or on you, something like that. And I'm thinking, though I'm not 100% sure that this is a mention to Fight Club, uh, because if you recall, they, they take like the liposucked fat from the hospital and start making 
glycerin and things like that. I think they make soap as well and uh, other stuff. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but I'm just thinking that that's what that reference is. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Hey, I'm going to give this 8 out of 10 diplomas. I, I think this is a satisfying ending, but only for the strange storyline. The Calamity storyline is still dangling out there like a carrot. And it's dang because you, you've not seen her mother dead dead, even though we're being told she's dead. you got to see the body, people. you got to see the body. And then I feel like this is a big period and moment for Olive that she might be turning evil. I mean, there are influences coming upon her, and, and I feel like little by little she's almost letting into the dark side letting it overwhelm her and did she kill hugo strange that would be huge and either she remembers that or she doesn't remember that in the earlier issues she doesn't remember the things that go on when calamity takes over so ooh, lots of stuff lots of stuff i i feel like this is just the theme with this particular book is that something will be wrapped up and then many little flossy strings are floating in the wind waiting to be tied up but only one of them will be the next time so at least it's interesting and i like the characters enough to keep going and i think hopefully that's what other people think because otherwise i think it would be very frustrating honestly but in a way this almost reminds me of morning glories which is an image book uh, just because there's so many mysteries that go on and that that is also a bit of a a, a long haul of a of a book you gotta stick with it and is very detailed and very uh, full of intrigue and mysteries and uh, crazy deep philosophical ideas. Okay, well enough about that and waxing philosophically. Let's move into Gotham Academy number 13. But before I want to talk to you about Robin War and what Robin War is, I'm not going to talk about Robin War in terms of its issues, but I kind of have to mention it because... 13 is a tie-in. Gotham Academy 13 is a tie-in. So Robin War begins when a Robin attempts to... A, uh, I guess I need to back up even further. If you're not reading We Are Robin, basically a bunch of kids have sort of taken up the emblem of Robin and fight, not sanctioned or anything. Alfred sort of helps them out under the guise of something else, uh, of somebody else. So unsanctioned Robin's sort of helping out the streets, basically. So a, a Robin attempts to foil an armed robbery and he messes up very badly and two people are dead, one of them including a cop. So because of this, Gotham City, the government has finally decided to bring the hammer down on these teenage vigilantes. While all that is going down because some really harsh justice is being doled out, uh, you've got the return of all of the Robins, even one that technically wasn't one in the New 52 verse, which is Tim Drake. And then the real Robin, or as he should be currently, Damian Wayne also uh, shows up. And we then also find out that sort of orchestrating all this government legislation are the Court of Owls, which I don't really, um, if you don't know what the Court of Owls are, I would research that. But basically, they have been around for a very long time and they have plans for the city and they're very rich and powerful members that sort of have their thumbs in different pies throughout the city and things like that. And Okay, I think that's enough. But anyway, so that's Robin War. There's sort of a plot that the Court of Owls are creating. 
and they're using the Gotham City government to take down these Robins. We don't really know what the, the final thing is. So the main titles that this happens in, Robin War number one, Grayson number 15, Detective Comics number 47, We Are Robin number seven, Robin Son of Batman number seven, and Robin War number two. Okay, so that's the actual main, it'll say like part one, part two, part two, etc. Then we have three tie-ins. We have Gotham Academy number 13, which is of course very relevant to this discussion right now. Red Hood and Arsenal number 7 and Teen Titans number 15. Okay, so it's a tie-in, not necessarily affecting the story, but it is it has elements and it fits in with the plot. So that'll be the big question hanging over this review is was this a worthwhile tie-in or not? So Gotham Academy number 13, Robins versus Zombies. Writer Brendan Fletcher, penciler Adam Archer, inker Sandra Hope and color Sergey Lapointe. A boy who stole some donation money from Headmaster Hammer is running away from his roommate, who happens to be a Robin. And he runs into a greenhouse on the Gotham Academy campus when he is suddenly grabbed from something buried in dirt. It rises, it rises suddenly, and the boy and Robin run off. This incident is the talk of the school as Hammer speaks at an assembly about the current Robin War situation. After the assembly, Olive is called into Headmaster Hammer's office and she exits with a prospective student, Rico Sheridan. Maps shoots eye daggers at her, literally, and then rushes off. Olive catches up with her and lets her know that Maps will always be her BFF, even if Rico is jacking her backpack style and rooming with Olive for the time being. Later that night, the gang investigates her greenhouse and come up with a map, of course, and a plan to catch the zombie. They decide to use Dr. Kirk Langstrom as bait because, guess what? He's got the biggest brains and zombies eat brains. While waiting, all of the Maps see Rico and Robin Garb and she totally rises in Maps' esteem. Maps and Rico geek out over Robin and the fact that Maps actually met Red Robin in real life. And the zombie appears, which is actually a Talon. Do you remember these Talons? Do you remember them? Huh? Huh? Eh. A creation of the Court of Owls. See, it all comes back. It all comes back. Their plans don't work out well. But it does attract the attention of Kirk Langstrom and a groundskeeper who happens to be in league with, guess what, the Court of Owls. Langstrom realizes that the talent is attracted to the electricity in his lab. The talent comes to the lab when Langstrom and Colton throw some electricity, and the talent recognizes Olive, at least her hair, and says his name is uh, Ephraim. Ephraim will remain at Gotham Academy for the time being. Do 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 do. Yeah, Ephraim. Rico gets a call from Duke and Matt. Oh, Duke is an orphan. He has been orphaned from the Joker war, fall, the endgame fallout that happened in Batman. It's very similar to Bruce Wayne getting orphaned. We don't know that his parents are dead dead. We haven't seen the body, people. Remember, you always need to see the body. But there's kind of this feeling that if Bruce Wayne comes back in the cowl, that Duke is going to be the Robin. That's the feeling. I don't want it, but that's the feeling. So there's my little editorial note there. So, Rico gets a call from Duke, and Maps follows her out while Olive tries to keep Maps away from her. Cops show up and take Rico away. Maps gets upset at Olive for ratting Rico out about being a Robin, and then Damien shows up. He hides in a tree, and while he remains hidden, he tells Maps to stay free and keep hidden. 
Olive has her best interests at heart, and she has to listen to her. Matt's friends will need her when the time comes. He's going to stay in touch, but for now, he has an army to vanquish. Next up, Yearbook Part 1. Let me be frank with you people, because you know that I lie to you all the time. I didn't like this issue at all when it started, uh, but I, I feel like as the page count increased, it did get much better. I didn't really see the point of having this tie-in, because besides including characters that are the same age as the Robins, was there a point? No. I mean, I could have replaced a bunch of other stuff. I could have had, like, a, a giant Venus flytrap rise from the dirt, and that could have worked. Like, all these different elements could have been changed to suit another story. I didn't really need it. I just happened to have two Robins going to Gotham Academy at the same time, or someone at the same time. Yeah. So, for me, it doesn't really work as a tie-in. wasn't really worthwhile. Could have used the story points elsewhere. But I'll get to my two positives of this later on. The Robin at the beginning uh, puts his costume on over his uniform. <laughs> what a nerd. Somebody needs to help that guy out. The beginning was really like a Harry Potter uh, film, just where there's some sort of disruption. And then the headmaster has an all-school meeting. thought that was pretty cool. I like how the whole group has to wait for all of outside of the office. Uh, that's camaraderie for you people. I don't think any one time. That I went to. No, no, it wasn't one time I lied to you there. But in the times that I may have gone to an administrator's office, no one was waiting for me. Maps's opinion of Rico gives me whiplash because first she does not like her at all, more of a jealousy thing just because Rico's going to stay with Olive while she's tentatively looking over the place. And then all of a sudden, Rico's a Robin. Oh my gosh, she's so cool. I, I feel like Maps needs to nail down some characteristics that she would like to see in a friend. Maps gives Rico a resume mentioning what they have defeated, who she's met, but why not mention Damien and his potential association to Batman? I thought that was a very interesting person to let off the list, especially since he appears at the very end. It's interesting also what Rico thinks of the school and the food. She talks about how the food is not good. Remember how amazing those buffets looked and how original as well? Now, at the very end, I do wonder, was Olive jealous of Map's affection for Rico? And I guess I shouldn't say at the end, because I think starting from the roof moment where Rico uh, gets called up by Maps, you start to see this tension here. So was she jealous of Maps' new affection, newfound affection for Rico? Was she concerned for her friend, as she said? Or was it all because of her hatred for Batman and anything associated with him? At the end... Damien tells Maps that he's hidden things around campus and he's going to call upon them when the time comes. And I'm really hoping that this is a story point that gets picked up again. Uh, it seems like a pretty big one that he's hidden things around there. When did he hide things around there? Well, his short tenure? His two-week tenure or however long he was there? Probably less than that, to be honest. But what did he hide? And, I mean, I don't think they're going to be popping up in Robin War anymore, but who knows if... Uh, there's going to be some other big crossover with Damien Wayne. Here are my two best parts here. My two favorite parts of this issue. The Talon and Langstrom. Number one, Talon's connection to Silverlock was pretty shocking. And you can clearly see that it's most likely the hair. And as we've seen in, in those files that she went through a couple issues back with Red Robin, it seems like a, a hereditary trait that each of the Silverlocks seem to have. And so he recognizes her. And because 
these talents could be around for centuries, right? They're sort of, they, they wake up, they do their duty, whatever is asked of them, and then they're put back in, in some hibernation, very similar to, if you've ever read it, uh, Winter Soldier over at Marvel. So I, I'm wondering what this connection is to Silverlock. Is there a Silverlock on the Court of Owls? Could Sybil or Sybil's father, um, could they potentially be alive and on the court? Who knows? I am wondering, though, uh, with Ephraim, it, how long he's going to last because he's going to stay there, you know, on campus. Is he going to be there for a little while or is he going to be taken out right after Robin War? I think that could be really fun to have him as like a, I don't know, like an incognito groundskeeper or something that's protecting people. People think he looks strange, but he's okay. He's just our groundskeeper. I think that'd be funny. Like a Hagrid, you know, like a Hagrid. I also like Langstrom. I think it's good to add another professor as a cast member rather than a guest and perhaps one that is not malevolent. And uh, he seems like a curmudgeon. Almost he seems upset about it, but then, you know, he remarks on people's intelligence and I think he gets along with Colton and he plays into their plan, which I think is great. So I think there are positive things with there. Now there is a continuity error for those of you that are actually reading Robin War and the fact that uh, Damien, sort of a placeholder there for Dick because... Dick actually gets all the Robins, including the official Robins or past Robins, uh, arrested in order to protect them. And Damien did not know about this. And he's sort of sharing that this is something. In a way, he's sharing what had happened or what was going to happen. And and that doesn't really make sense. So uh, that's a bit of a continuity issue. I understand why they had to use Damien because he knows maps. He knows the grounds, but uh, just doesn't really work out in the scheme of the actual Robin War event. Now, who knows what this issue is going to be, if it even makes sense to someone who's not reading Robin War. I don't know. I guess you could just say that there are a bunch, there are these Robins that are running around. I mean, Professor Hammer almost gives a little backstory. So I think it works out a little bit, and perhaps you're, you're not better off for knowing that there's a continuity issue, but there it is. I've brightened your horizons. The art, finally, not a fan. Uh, in fact, I thought that the the Robin at the beginning was supposed to be Rico, but just was a terribly drawn girl. And then about the second time I read it, I realized that it was supposed to be a boy. Uh, yeah, so we need to bring back, bring back the actual artists. Uh, so we've got a couple mentions. We have Aunt Harriet, which should make a Josh Pertoni happy. Uh, seems like she may be in charge of rooming and things like that. She's like, like a sorority house mom. I don't know what her actual profession would be but i imagine she keeps up with the rooms and stuff and we also have professor louis or professor lilac sorry and he is of course louis the lilac which uh, appeared in the batman 66 series i'm going to give this one seven out of ten diplomas again not the best issue for gotham academy and i didn't really like it at all until it got better two main points to focus on two positives kirk wangstrom and ephraim so let's just uh keep it there there's no black canary review however short i do them anyways because again the shipping error was a little weird so no black canary for today and now over to chris for his batman 66 review thank you very much stella hello bat fans welcome once again to the batman 66 review segment thank you for downloading and thank you for not fast forwarding i'm chris and i'm very glad to be with you today after a hiatus while the batgirl title skipped a month Mm-hmm. 
the mood is bleak and somber, as today the flags are figuratively lowered half-staff, die-hard fans openly or silently wept, as we collectively lower our heads in reverence, while I look at the final two issues of Batman 66. Batman 66, number 29, was cover dated January 2016, and Batman 66, number 30, was cover dated February 2016. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. Batman 66, issue number 29, has two stories, and our first story is entitled Parker Breaks Out, written by Jeff Parker and art by Dean Haspiel. Our story opens with Batman and Robin in the Batmobile, which is being pummeled by bullets as they are fired upon by Tommy guns by Ma Parker and her boys from their car. We then jump to a flashback detailing Ma Parker's prison escape. After inciting a riot and subsequently breaking out her sons, as well as Killer Croc, Solomon Grundy, and the Killer Ma. We shift back to the present time, and the Batmobile is in hot pursuit of Ma Parker and her gang. During the chase, her car falls off a bridge, and Batman, as well as Ma Parker, dive in to rescue her kids. They are promptly taken into Arkham after they are rescued. That leaves the other villains still at large, and leads us directly to our second story, Catwoman Comes About, written by Jeff Parker and art by Jonathan Case. Nighttime, Batgirl and Robin are on motorcycles looking for the escaped villains where they are quickly ambushed with their cycles taken out and promptly seized by Solomon Grundy, Killer Croc, and Killer Ma. Meanwhile, the Catwoman is fleeing on rooftops after stealing a tiara and Batman is giving chase. Catwoman falls off the roof and Batman swings down to rescue her. While taking the apprehended Catwoman to the Batmobile, a kid informs Batman that Batgirl and Robin have been captured. Catwoman frees herself from the bat cuffs and agrees to help Batman and tells him to head to the warp as Catwoman knows where everyone's hideout is. They arrive in time to rescue a bound Batgirl and Robin before they can be lowered by Crane into shark-infested waters. During the ensuing fight, Catwoman more than holds her own and Batman's thoughts reflect on his feelings for Catwoman. After the dust settles, our heroes are victorious over the fallen foes and Batman reflects over the seemingly disappeared, yet very smitten Catwoman, who just happens to overhear Batman over the bottom bow of the boat. The End Shelley Winters portrayed Ma Parker on the 1966 Batman TV series in the two-part episodes entitled The Greatest Mother of Them All and the second episode simply entitled Ma Parker, which coincidentally had a cameo appearance of Julie Newmar's Catwoman. Now, for those of you out there aged in your 40s or younger, Shelley Winters may be best known as Nana Mary on the Roseanne sitcom with Roseanne Barr, where she played Roseanne's grandmother for 10 episodes in the 1990s. But Winters' acting career on stage and screen spanned over 50 years. Shelley Winters won two Oscars for her works in the film The Diary of Anne Frank and A Patch of Blue. Shelley Winters also won a Golden Globe for the 1972 film The Poseidon Adventure. She passed away in 2006 at age 85. Now, the villain, the Killer Moth, never officially appeared on the Batman TV series. However, an actor named Tim Herbert portrayed the Killer Moth in a promotional test film for the show which introduced Yvonne Craig as Batgirl with an early version of Craig in her costume. While it was nice to see Ma Parker be able to squeeze an appearance before the Batman 66 title vanishes, 
I thought her story devoted too many pages and panels with her escape. We never got to see her get too far after her escape and what her plans were, if any. The second story had Batgirl, Killer Moth, and it also showed the feelings between Batman and Catwoman, which were finally explored in this title. We also had a bit of a cliffhanger, which didn't hurt either. Uh, the artwork in both stories I thought were good. Certain panels in both stories seemed to be taken from still shots from the TV series. The depiction of Catwoman's fall looked like a panel from a similar scene in a serialized story from Action Comics Weekly many, many years ago. While the first story didn't seem to do any more than serve as provide villains for the second story, the second story did have all the elements I could hope for. Great art, fast pacing, and the aforementioned Batgirl, Killer Moth, and a cliffhanger. Also, a nod to some of the Catwoman-Batman shipping. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 3 out of 5 bats. Based on the strength of the second story, I'm going to be a little more generous and give Batman 66 number 29 7.5 out of 10 bats. Now let's move on to Batman 66 number 30, and the story is entitled here, Main Title. Written by Lee Allred and art by Michael and Laura Allred. Our story starts at Gotham City Police Headquarters with Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara perplexed as crime has seemingly stopped in Gotham City. Smash cut to a movie studio backlot where the Catwoman, the Joker, and the Penguin appear to be holding a villain's convention amid various props used as death traps from the TV show, which I'll identify in a little bit. Where the Riddler was not invited as the three uh, other villains are annoyed by his obsession for riddles. Now, a lackey visits the Riddler at Gotham State Jail, where he informs the Riddler of this convention, and naturally the Riddler becomes enraged. Meanwhile, at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Alfred tells Bruce and Dick that Commissioner Gordon is calling, and our heroes then learn of a box of film reels with riddles has arrived at police headquarters. Batman and Robin arrive at GCPDHQ, and promptly solve the riddles, which leads them to the film studio, with Fox of the terrible trio acting as a lookout. The dynamic duo burst in, and the bat fight to end all bat fights ensues over the next five pages. Just when the villains are getting the upper hand, the remotely summoned Batmobile with an activated battering ram bursts through a wall, and the bat beam shocks several of the bad guys. The Riddler shows up, and he is promptly taken out by Catwoman. Batgirl arrives in the nick of time on her Batgirl cycle and provides a final assist. As the villains are being taken away, reporters gather and Batman gives a brief press conference. The bat signal is suddenly spotted in the sky and our terrific trio are off on their next adventure. The end. <sighs> okay, so let me take a stab at all these traps from the TV series that were shown on page 2. Okay, now in the top panel we have the Frosty Freezies from the episodes Green Ice Deep Freeze. The electric chairs, which were from the Joker Goes to School, He Meets His Match, the Grizzly Goo episodes. Or they could be from the Ma Parker episode, Take Your Pick. The Sulfuric Acid Bath was from His Honor the Penguin, Dishonor the Penguin episodes. The Hourglass from the Clock King Gets Crowned episode. Uh, the Key Replicator from the Impractical Joker episode. The Spinning Device uh, from A Riddle a Day Keeps the Riddler Away. And we have the bell in the upper right corner from the bookworm turns while Gotham City burns episodes. 
And let's see, in the bottom panel, we have the piano player punch roll from the Devil's Finger Shandell episode, uh, the brain extractor from An Egg Grows in Gotham, the Egg Foes in Gotham episodes. Uh, there's two Catwoman traps here, the sound chamber from the Cat's Meow and the giant magnifying glasses from the Cat and the Fiddle. And let's see, there's also the rotating barbecue spit from the Minstrel Shakedown and the Buzzsaw, I think that was from the Riddler's False Notion episode. Okay, now if that wasn't enough, uh, I think the Allreds went all out of their way to include numerous cameos of other characters and villains alike. Now let's see, on the villain side there was Mr. Polkadot, who originally appeared in Detective Comics 300. We have Catman, uh, there's Roy Reynolds, a.k.a. the getaway genius who first appeared in Batman number 170. Solomon Grundy, Adam Master, uh, who I believe appeared in the World's Finest title, Signalman, King Cobra, uh, he first appeared in Batman number 137, which was also the debut of the Betty King Batgirl. Uh, he also does appear never on the show, but it was in the animated opening credits. Uh, there's the Terrible Trio, Clayface, Milo, Egghead, Bookworm, Mr. Freeze, the Mad Hatter, Falseface, King Tut, the Archer, Clock King, Shame, Ma Parker, Chief Screaming Chicken of all people, and Mr. Camera, who first appeared in Batman number 81, but uh, had his story reprinted during the peak of the Batman TV show popularity, which was in uh, Batman number 185. That was cover dated October 1966. Now, this was an 80-page giant issue, which was an issue saluting Robin, and all the stories in this particular comic uh, devoted the stories to Robin, where Robin had a significant role. Also, uh, there was a back climb sequence. We had the TV Perry White, Jimmy Olsen, and Lois Lane pop out of the window from The Adventures of Superman. And toward the end of the story, there was a press conference where we possibly had Peter Parker as a photographer. For sure, we had Vicki Vale, Clark Kent, Jack the Creeper writer, Billy, Captain Marvel Batson, and there was also Nellie Majors from the Green Ice episode. We also have, finally, a character named uh, Rit Breed, which was an obvious takeoff of Brit Reed, the Green Hornet. Several pages were nods to the animated portion of the series opening credits. Reading Batman 66, number 30, was very heartbreaking to me, knowing that this was going to be the last issue. But at the same time, uh, there was a joy seeing all the effort the Allreds put into the story, with so many faces and props crammed into every panel. Now, one could argue that the story was light, and the nods and the homages of, to the series took up way too many panels. However, I'd like to think that the Allreds were going all out to show their love for the show and may not get an opportunity to do so like this again before the window closed. I thought here they went well above and beyond the creativity level here. This was an artistic feast, and I'm sure I left out other nice touches that they included. How could I possibly find any nitpicks or flaws with, with all they did here? I'm giving Batman 66 number 30 a deserved 10 out of 10 bats, with no qualms or second thoughts for me whatsoever. Incidentally, I gave no other issue of this series a score that high. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gives this 4 out of 5 stars. I spied on other online reviews of this particular issue, and overall they have been positive. That said, I had hoped for a bit more shared love and appreciation just for this particular issue. Please seek it out for the art alone if you haven't done so already. As that was the final issue of Batman 66, thought about the series. Uh, my past reviews of Batman 66 have been critical on this uh, podcast. I thought there were a lot of missed opportunities with the title, and I don't know if I'll ever know what constrictions the creative team may have had with the digital format. 
I had hoped for more Batgirl, more cliffhangers, a bit more of Bruce and Dick's social lives explored, and certainly a bit of the camp humor, which was the hallmark of the show. That said, I do have respect for all the creative talents that worked very hard on this title during the series' run, and I thank them for their efforts. Okay, before I go, I'd like to thank Stella for allowing me some time on her podcast. Hey, I had a lot of fun doing this, and, you know, it's been great, uh, a ride, and I can't wait. What? Oh, it looks like I get to review another Batman 66-related title. That will include Batgirl. Batman 66 meets the Man from U.N.C.L.E. Okay, Batman 66 meets the Man from U.N.C.L.E. number one is cover dated February 2016 and is entitled The Batman Affair, Chapter 1. This was written by Jeff Parker and art by David Hahn and Carl Kessel. And the cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laurel Allred. The story opens with Napoleon Solo, man from uncle, being chased in a sewer system by two men working for bat villain Olga, Queen of the Cossacks. When Solo appears to be cornered, he manages to shock the men into unconsciousness, and he takes a ticket from one of them to a secret meeting on a canal. Meanwhile, in Gotham City... Batman and Robin hear of a breakout at Arkham Asylum. They're in the Batmobile, and suddenly they are chasing the Penguin and a henchman named Rennie in a modified Penguin-modeled car. The Penguin is in radio contact with someone, who I presume is later to be revealed as Olga, and they lead the dynamic duel into a dark tunnel and subsequent trap, where our heroes are knocked out with what appears to be some sort of sound ray device. Meanwhile, in Ghent, Belgium... Napoleon infiltrates the criminal organization Thrush's fund meeting aboard a boat in a canal. Olga is aboard and recognizes Napoleon instantly. Napoleon jumps overboard and he gets into a boat driven by Ilya Kiryakin. Olga gives chase and capsizes their boat. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin, who are now bound hand and foot, start to revive and find themselves still in the cave, but now they are surrounded by dynamite, with Penguin telling them that he'll blow them up but he'll take good care of the Batmobile. Meanwhile, Olga interrogates a bound Ilya and Napoleon. Ilya speaks to Olga in Russian and convinces Olga to release him. Meanwhile, Robin manages to free a hand, and Batman gets loose and remotely manages to lock the Penguin inside the Batmobile. Meanwhile, Ilya seemingly is about to betray Napoleon, but he suddenly puts earplugs in his ears before activating a sound device of his own, allowing the pair to escape. Meanwhile, back in Gotham, upon returning Penguin to Arkham, Dr. Hugo informs the heroes that even more villains have managed to escape, while he was knocked out from behind. To be continued. Okay, in the course of the reviews of this series, I'll go over some of the background from The Man from U.N.C.L.E., uh, regards to the issue itself, I really like the action and the cliffhangers we were given here and thought the series got off to a very good and very fast start. I hope the pace continues. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 3.5 out of 5 stars. I'm going to give Batman 66 meets the Man from Uncle number 1 8 out of 10 bats, just based on the fast pacing, action, and the artwork. Before I go, as this is a Batman 66 segment, I am obliged to acknowledge the 50th anniversary of the debut of the Batman TV series this past January 12th. I was pleasantly surprised that more than a few media outlets picked up on this as well. Also, has anyone noticed or seen the Batman and Superman serials in the grocery store, which tie into the movie? 
I noticed there was no prizes in the box, but the box itself looks kind of snazzy. That's it for me. Listeners, please feel free to leave any comments on the TBE website. Please feel free to give us a good review over iTunes, and thank you for your support. What villains have escaped from Arkham? When will Batman actually meet the men from UNCLE? What men have their eyes on Barbara Gordon? The answer to these unanswered unfathomables to be untangled next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Next up is the return of Babs in the Tube. Remember, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I'm watching the 1977 New Adventures of Batman TV series. This is episode 12, Dead Ringers, air date April 28, 1977. Starring Adam West as Batman Bruce Wayne, Burt Ward as Robin Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite, the Batcomputer, and Clayface Matt Hagen, Melanie Britt as Batgirl and Barbara Gordon, and Lenny Weinrib as Commissioner Gordon. Clayface recruits a circus acrobat with a remarkable resemblance to Robin, and together they pose as Batman and Robin in order to steal an oil-locating device. The real caped crime fighters must prove themselves innocent and then defeat their doppelgangers. Take a listen. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil. Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen, proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder. And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman. You know, there's something awfully familiar about that boy. Excuse me, are you Kit Martin? That's right. Could I talk to you for a moment, privately? Yeah, sure. See you later, Kit. How would you like to become an instant millionaire? Well, well, who wouldn't? Depends on what I have to do. Put on this mask. You're a dead ringer for Robin, the boy wonder. Yeah, so? With your help, my boy, I can guarantee that we can pull off the greatest crime of the century and become instant millionaires. You could buy this circus and ten more like it. Are you interested? Sorry, mister. I got a job. You won't have it long if I let your boss know that you were in jail at one time for robbery. All right. What do I have to do? the local news. 
The Arabian oil minister, Faisal Oran, is due to arrive shortly at Gotham City Airport. And we now switch you to our remote unit and roving reporter, Debbie Yamamoto. Popcorn ready yet, Dick? Hold your horses, Bruce. It's coming. Faisal Oran has just arrived at Gotham City Airport with tight police security under the personal supervision of Commissioner Gordon. Oran is here with top-secret plans for an oil-finding device that supposedly will revolutionize the petroleum industry. Dick, is something... burning? I hope you like it. Well done. Oran is now shaking hands with Commissioner Gordon, who will escort the minister to his hotel, where he will meet tomorrow morning with top city officials to discuss the new invention. My mouth was watering for some hot buttered popcorn. Well, it's hot. Would you like me to butter it? And here come Batman and Robin. Batman, Batman and Robin? Robin? Who are taking the minister to their car. Commissioner Gordon appears somewhat stunned by the whole thing and is now going after the dynamic duo. Let's go, Dick. We'll take the Batcopter. Right behind you, Bruce. Check every road leading from the airport. Those imposters won't get very far in that phony Batmobile. Roger, Batman. I'll use the infrared binoculars. I demand to know where you are taking me. You are not Batman. Who are you? Let me put it this way, Mr. Oran. Before the night is over, I will be one of the wealthiest men in the world. What about this car? It sticks out like a sore thumb. Don't worry, my boy. I've thought everything. Try Highway 31. Have no fear, Batmighty's. Uh, uh, oops, better try that again. Have no fear. Batmite, will you take a powder? We're busy. I was only trying to help. You could help us later, Batmite. Never mind. I know when I'm not wanted. Ta da! Holy dragsters! There's a car moving fast right below us, Batman. I'll drop down for a closer look. It's Batman and Robin. Nothing to worry about, my boy. They're looking for the Batmobile. <laughs> Looks harmless. Maybe we'd better check it out, Robin. Batman, the Bat Signal. The Commissioner. We'd better see what he wants. innocent and you know you're innocent unfortunately the arabs who were with the minister when he was grabbed know only what they saw and what they saw looked exactly like batman and robin look at this batman and robin hunted by police <laughs> everyone is screaming for justice and until we get this thing cleared up i'm afraid we'll have to lock you both up holy jailbirds commissioner you can't mean that i have no other choice robin 
Give us two hours to find the imposters, Commissioner. I don't know, Batman. I think I know who one of them is. Matt Hagen, otherwise known as Clayface. Clayface? Of course! No one else could pull this off but him. All right, Batman, you've got two hours. No more. Yes? I released Mr. Oran, Commissioner, but the plans for the oil device are now in my possession. I will return them intact for $10 million, and you have one hour to do it. Did you hear me, Commissioner? <laughs> I heard you, Clayface. But you'll never... One hour. I'll be in touch to tell you where and how I want the money. That was Clayface. He's giving us one hour to come up with $10 million for the plans. That's all the time we'll need, Commissioner. And I'll make sure that that one hour will be the longest in the dynamic duo's career. There's no one in that truck. Holy vacancy! Robin, take the controls. I'm going aboard that truck. I've got it. Be careful, Batman. The brakes are gone. I'm going to ride it out. Roger. I'll put on the siren and ride ahead of you. My only chance now is to find a nice, soft landing spot. That sand pile might be just what I'm looking for. Holy TKO! He's out cold! Who are you? Who am I? Holy short memories, Batman. This is no time for jokes. What did you call me? Batman. You're Batman and I'm Robin. Don't you remember? I can't remember a thing, including my name. Holy forget-me-nots. You must have amnesia. I'd better get you back to the Batcave right away. We've got a problem, Bat-Computer. Batman hit his head, and now he's got amnesia. Amnesia? My, that is a problem. You've got to help him, Bat-Computer. I can cure him of the amnesia, but it will take time. We've got less than an hour to prove our innocence to those oil dudes. I'll take care of Batman and contact you when he's recovered. Right. I'll take the Batcopter and see if Batgirl can lend me a hand. This must be the Batcave. Where am I? You are in the Batcave. A talking computer? I must be going nuts. I couldn't have planned this better myself. Now I'll find out who Batman really is. 
how soon they forget. <laughs> I am Clayface. Clayface? Do I know you? You used to know me. And this is the moment I've been waiting for for a very long time. I don't understand. I'm going to find out who you really are. And your career as a crime fighter will be over forever. <laughs> Let's see who you really are, Batman. Boy, are you ugly, sheesh! Come back, you little twerp! I am preparing a formula that will restore your memory shortly, Batman. Show yourself, Batmite. I'll find you if I have to turn this room upside down. Here I am, dummy face. You're going to eat those words, Pee-wee. is working, Bat-Computer. My memory's coming back. You should have complete recovery very quickly, Batman. Hello, Batmite. Batman, you remember me? You're unforgettable, Batmite. Oh, boy, I almost forgot. I captured Clayface. You captured Clayface? You think I'm kidding, huh? Come on, Batman, I'll show you. You sure this is where you left him, Batmite? Sure, I'm sure. Well, he was an eagle the last time I saw him. Maybe he flew back to Capistrano. That mouse. It's Clayface. Batmite, you... I'm not going in there. It's too dark and spooky. I'll keep you company on this walkie-talkie. You're not afraid, are you, Batmite? Me afraid? Of, uh, of course not. I, I was just figuring out my strategy. Right here, Batmite. You better get moving. I don't want Clayface to get away. Why do I get all the crummy jobs? Holy secret identities! We know Clayface posed as Batman, Batgirl, but the big question is, who's impersonating me? I saw someone just recently that reminded me of you, Robin, and now I can't remember where. I hope Batman's amnesia isn't catching. Now I remember... I was at the circus yesterday. A young trapeze artist by the name of Kent Martin. He could have been your twin. Let's check it out. Try a skill. Try a skill, ladies and gentlemen. Wow! That guy is something else. That makes it even harder to understand why he would get mixed up with someone like Clayface. Maybe we've got the wrong person. We'll find out soon enough. Here he comes. Could we talk to you a minute, Kit? Uh, uh sure. Uh, is something wrong? We just want to ask you a few questions. Well, I, I have to get ready for the finale. It'll just take a second. Have you ever seen this man? Uh, no, no, no. I, I've never seen him in my life. Uh, uh... Can you tell us where you were earlier this evening? Well, this evening? Well, I... Well, look... Why are you asking me all these questions? I haven't done anything. Then why won't you answer our questions? Kit! 
jackrabbit. A jackrabbit? What's he doing? Running like crazy. Well, go after him. I've got to know where he comes out. Why do I always get the crummy jobs? Take the other ladder, Batgirl. There's not a whole lot of places he can go up there. Give it up, Kit. You're only making things worse. You can't get away, Kit. now, Kit? Yeah, what's the use? No one will help me anyway. Why did you get mixed up with an evil character like Clayface? He said he'd tell my boss I'm an ex-con. Things were just starting to happen for me and I didn't want to blow it. <sighs> Look, I know I made a mistake and I'd like to make up for it. I'll help you any way I can. Thanks, Kit. We could use your help. Good work, Batmite. I'll take it from here. He turned into a dolphin. He swam out into the lake. Roger, Batmite. I'll find him. Mr. Oran's blueprints for the oil device, Commissioner, and I'm sorry I ever got mixed up in this mess. Robin and Batgirl spoke very highly of you, Kit, and we appreciate your help in recovering these papers. Oh, there's one thing more, Commissioner. I was supposed to deliver this to Clayface before midnight. He says it's medicine, and he said it was very important. Holy Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde! I'll bet that's the formula he uses to enable him to change. You're right, Robin. And if he doesn't take some before midnight, his powers to transform are gone. Kit, do you have any idea where he is? He said he'd call me and tell me where to bring the stuff. All I know is that he was after Batman. Holy amnesia! I completely forgot about Batman. Let's go. He may need our help. Pull away. I'd better fire up the jetpack. 
prize for him. There's mud in your eye, Clayface. down there, Robin. One must be the bat sub. I'm getting a strong metal sounding. What's the other one? Could be a fish. A big fish. I'll try Batman again on the radio. Batman, this is Robin. Do you read me? Over. Loud and clear, Robin. Where are you? Directly above you. Where's Clayface? He's kind of in the dark right now, Robin. Uh, what time do you have, Batman? One minute to midnight. Why ask? Clayface has to rejuvenate himself with some kind of potion every 24 hours. Or he loses his ability to change. We've got the potion, and his 24 hours expires at midnight. Clayface told me he couldn't swim. If he changes down there... Batman, I think Clayface is going to need your help. He can't swim. That is a problem. In 40 feet of water, I'll get him. Drop the rescue sling. Roger. is over, Hagen. Thanks to our Cape Crusaders here. I helped too, you know. And so did Kit. Well, it's the least I could do to try and make up for what could have been the biggest mistake of my life. The important thing is you realized your mistake, Kit. And your mistake is thinking I won't be back. Nobody puts Clayface away for very long. Get him out of here. Hey, Clayface. Let's see you turn into a jailbird. <laughs> <laughs> that message. Those secret plans for the oil finding device are back in safe hands, and Clayface looks like he's found a new home. By the way, Batman, how's your head? My head? You had amnesia, remember? Oh, amnesia? Right. I forgot about that. I wonder if she likes short guys. And finally, it's time for my literature recommendation. And two of them, well, they're all different. Uh, they're all female-led. Uh, well, one of them's available. But uh, very different sort of genres, I guess, than I'm used to and, and different than those that I recommend on this particular show. First up, it is The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith. And this was written in 1952, I do believe. And it has recently come out as a film. And the film is called Carol. 
and this book was actually originally published under a pseudonym because it was about something very taboo. It was about a homosexual relationship between two women. So uh, it's a chance encounter between two lonely women, which leads to a passionate romance in this lesbian cult classic, as Amazon says. Therese, a struggling young sales clerk, and Carol, a homemaker in the midst of a bitter divorce, abandon their oppressive daily routines for the freedom of the open road where their love can blossom. But their newly discovered bliss is shattered when Carol is forced to choose between her child and her lover. Now, I just want to put out there that that this isn't smut or anything you know crazy it it really it's it's not only dealing with sort of social pressures at that time and as well as therese trying to figure out like who she is uh so it's a very interesting journey of of two different people and it's written in therese's perspective so you have this this young perspective because there's a bit of an age difference between them uh so i do recommend that Patricia Highsmith wrote Strangers on a Train and the Talented Mr. Ripley. So she's known for her psychological thrillers, if you can imagine that. And I feel like this is very much uh, psychological as well, just dealing with what are these two women thinking as as they uh, are interacting. The next one is called Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. And if you recall, I read his The Virgin Suicides. It starts off, I was born twice. First as a baby girl on a remarkably smogless Detroit day of January 1960, and then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near Petoskey, Michigan in August of 1974. My birth certificate lists my name as Calliope Helen Stefanides. My most recent driver's license records my first name simply as Cal. So begins the breathtaking story of Calliope Stephanides, wow, these Greek names, and three generations of the Greek-American Stephanides family who travel from a tiny village overlooking Mount Olympus in Asia Minor to Prohibition-era Detroit, witnessing its glory days as the Motor City and the race riots of 1967, before they move out to the tree-lined streets of suburban Gross Point, Michigan. To understand why Calliope is not like other girls, she has to uncover a guilty family secret and the astonishing genetic history that turns Callie into Cal, one of the most audacious and wondrous narrators in contemporary fiction. Lyrical and thrilling, Middlesex is an exhilarating reinvention of the American epic, so says Amazon.com. But I do recommend this. You're probably wondering what is going on. I will let you know that, uh, and Cal, I think lets us know very early on cows are hermaphrodite i mean what a tough position but she learns later in life that she's a hermaphrodite so she well he has a choice of of staying a girl you know with the surgery or or being a boy so it's it's the struggles of like her understanding who she is because when she's younger she started going through the struggle and then learning about the family as well and again uh, just uh, a really stunning and intriguing engaging narrator is cal so i do recommend that so see two out of the box books that i'm recommending and my last one is out of africa by isaac dennison uh and it's basically i mean it's a true story from 1914 to 1931 this uh danish aristocrat baroness karen blixen aka isaac dennison she owned and operated a coffee plantation in kenya and these are sort of her her journals almost uh combined just of a a particular period combined and talking about her experiences in africa so there you go a non-fiction that's non-fiction and then two fictions that are dealing with almost uh, struggles with identity in a society that 
or in a family that is not as accepting. So there you go. Those are my three literature recommendations. And that is it for this particular episode. Thanks again so very much to Ryan Daly for coming on, giving us a breath away from shag. Please remember to send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle, And like the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, maybe we'll see some of that white precipitation. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll get some better books in the uh, the Backworld and Gotham Academy. Hopefully, I'm going to be Ephraim's number one fan. I can just tell it right now. I'm, I'm loving that character, even his, his small scream time. Uh, I, I am a fan of Saul McGrundy, so... Ephraim's, he's rising my esteem. Uh, But anyways, blah, blah, blah. Fly on, Bads lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll... I love a happy ending, don't you?